welcome to Just a Spoonful, the podcast that is young and fully sick. This is a fortnightly conversation where the guests are all living with a chronic illness and or disability and the host is exhausted. I am that host, Caitlin Plyley. Hello, I am so tired. I've got a bunch of delayed fatigue going on, still recovering from the National Young Writers Festival a couple of weeks ago, which was amazing. And if you can go next year, I highly recommend it. Um, it's on every October in Newcastle. It's brilliant. Um, it's basically just like a bun- like all young writers just descending on this town for a weekend and it's summer camp for nerds. I just love it. Um, And while I was there, I got to sit down with a lovely lady. She's basically who I want to be when I grow up, Leifa Singleton Norton, and she's our guest this week. Uh, She's brilliant. Leifa is currently the creative producer at Express Media in Melbourne, and she is also a writer, editor, insomniac, my hero, and she has chronic fatigue syndrome, just like me. So you can see why I just love her. I want to be her twin. Um, Leifa, has pe- <laughs> Leifa has founded The Pun and The Pundit Newspapers in Melbourne. And she co-founded news website Limited News. Uh, we met in person for the first time at National Young Writers Festival in Newcastle this year, where Leifa had just presented on a panel called Invisible Illnesses, which was great as well. Um, it was our first time meeting in person after years of emails and tweets and liking each other's Facebook statuses. Um, and th- the opportunity to meet people from other states and cities is just one of the great things about these kind of festivals. They draw everyone in uh, so you can meet people. It's a really long chat this week, um, longer than usual. Um, not It's only episode three, so we don't really have a usual yet, but you know, um, I hope you'll stick with it because I really think it's worth listening to. Leifa is a really interesting person. She's only only in her mid-30s, early 30s, but she's already like lived such an interesting life. Um, as I mentioned, she's worked in publishing. She's worked in comedy. She has had to make a huge change in her career when she got chronic fatigue syndrome. And she tells me about how when she first got sick, she faded entirely out of her own life and even moved to a city where she had no friends. So she wouldn't have to be reminded of the life she lost. Um, but she got it back. It's, it's got a, the story has a happy ending. Um, we talk women in comedy, trying to explain your disability to your disability to your employer why Midsummer Murders is a great show, and how pregnancy and childbirth actually caused Leafa's symptoms to go away for a while, which was kind of amazing. Uh, you'll hear us mention a Tim from time to time. That is Leafa's partner, Tim Norton. Um, we recorded this in Leafa's hotel room in Newcastle at the Young Writers Festival, so you can hear in our voices, I think, we're both exhausted. Um, we t- we I, I tried to edit it a bit for you, but we go in conversational circles a little bit um, because we were both super fatigued. But it was lovely to be able to talk to someone who's going through almost the same thing as you. Um, and uh, yeah, it is in a hotel, so you might hear some of the background traffic outside the hotel sometimes. But yeah, I, I, I hope you like it. Let's kick on and have a chat with Leifa Singleton Norton.
Only for Singleton Norton. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Just a Spoonful. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so exciting. I'm so excited to have you here because I don't get to see you in real life because you live in Melbourne. That is true. Um, I just said it with my American accent too. <laughs> that never happens. Um, um, uh, uh, but you are from Brisbane? No, no, I'm from Melbourne, oh. and uh, I managed to live in Perth for about a year, but other that, than that, it's it's kind of Melbourne all the way for me. Oh, you lived in Perth for a year, that's my hometown. Yeah. Whereabouts were you? Northbridge. Tell- Northbridge? Yeah. Yeah. You lived in Northbridge? I did live in Northbridge. How did you manage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, essentially, um, we were there because um, my partner, well, <laughs> it's not why we were there, but... When we were working there, my partner was working for the Greens, um, and but we had a friend who was working there, um, and he worked in the building industry, uh, and basically the reason that we chose to go to Perth was because he had a house with essentially nothing in it, and he said, wait, you guys want to go live interstate for a while? Come to me. I have this like house, and it's empty, and you can live in it. You guys could like cook for me. If you cook for me, you can live there. So <laughs> we decided that a rent-free house in, in Perth... Uh, it was kind of too good to pass up, so we we went there. We were there for about a year. Um, my partner team worked for the Greens, and and we basically entered servitude. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did, and uh, it was well worth it. It was a great, it was a great year. Um, and yeah, we we got to live, you know, really centrally and really enjoy um the best that Perth had to offer, which was great. Cool. Yeah, Northbridge is cool. Like, don't get me wrong. I just yeah, uh, I, it's an intense place. Yes, it is. Uh, if we have any Brisbane listeners, think of Fortitude Valley. Yeah, yep. yep. <laughs> pretty full on. Yeah. We were quite lucky. It was it was um, Northbridge, but a little bit, you know, kind of out of the center of um, you know, most of the kind of bars and clubs and stuff. So, it wasn't too bad. Um. But also, I think having come from Melbourne before that, we lived in Collingwood, so oh, wow. we were used to living in like in a city, and we lived on the side of um, the Peel, which is a notorious gay bar that is open, you know, all night, like till six a.m. Um, so we were quite used to the idea of of um, late night shenanigans and hearing people sing everything from Jimmy Barnes to show tunes outside your window. So you were living um, on the side of a of a, a gay bar. Yeah, um, I don't know why I said it like I'm <laughs> like I'm a BBC announcer from the '60s, a gay bar. Yes, uh, quite shocking, quite shocking. No, not at all. They were, <laughs> they were really great neighbours, actually. Um, and um, you know, as happens when you live in places like that, someone of course sent around a um, petition asking us to like limit the hours or stop them making noise, and we were like, "Get fucked, you movie! <laughs> you you really cannot complain about an establishment that's been there for you know years and years." Um, yeah, what's so, yeah. the thinking there? They move into an area and then go, I don't like all of the things that are yeah, here. Yeah. Let's change it. I moved here because it's got such a lively personality, but ooh, I hate it when that personality interferes with my life. <laughs> um, it's really frustrating. Um, and we were in Collingwood for just a couple of years, um, but it was so common, you know, and we were only renting. So, you know, as far as we were concerned, we'd moved in knowing full well. And the only thing that ever set me off the entire time that we lived there was there was like someone's air conditioning unit used to put out this really high pitched squeal at like oh. two a.m. So I'd be lying there awake, and, and that would be the only thing I could hear was this really high pitched sound going on and on and on. And I was like, I don't want to complain about anything ever, but that sound, oh my god, it's drilling into my brain. But all of the you know people vomiting on your doorstep and <laughs> all that stuff was like, that's fine. It's, it's fine. just local color. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the colors are yeah. mainly green and orange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of carrots in the colors. Okay. <laughs> 
I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Uh, it's Poor okay. Caitlin. I recorded an interview with um, uh, writer Samuel Maguire, who's uh, <laughs> got uh, bipolar disorder and also anxiety. He was telling me about how he how much he vomits. Um, so I feel like we've set a precedent on this oh, podcast. Good. You've you know, got a theme already. <laughs> the theme is vomit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Glad to help. I am actually really bad with vomit. We have a parenting agreement between my partner and I that um, he deals with vomit. I'll take the blood. That's fine. If anything happens to our son, and it actually happened just this week, um, he oh, was no. so sick, he was coughing so hard, he was vomiting. And he, I was sitting with him, and so I'm trying to beat a hasty exit going, oh, God, if I'm staying near him, I'm going to start vomiting. And he's sort of reaching out to me like, Mommy, why are you leaving me? I'm vomiting everywhere. And I was oh. like, Tim, it's time to come and save me. Um, but, yeah, we actually had that conversation before he was born where I was like, you know, I know there are lots of things I'll get used to as a parent, but I'm pretty sure vomiting is not one of them. So yeah. I hope you're okay with that. He's like, yep, I got it. You take the blood, I'll take the vomit. All I right. like that. You yeah. guys worked it out really well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's most most of the parenting you need to do is figuring out what are your like hard nose. What can you really <laughs> not cope with? It's good to know. Um, so you are a creative producer at Express Media. Yeah. Uh, which is an organization I very much adore. Yeah. Uh, and I have adored your work there. So. Oh, thank you. Just. Uh, just a lot of love. Yeah, love. <laughs> well, I I absolutely love the organisation, and I, I'm actually um, finishing up there soon. But um, it's been like a, a, a an amazing home for me to work at um, for the last sort of three and a half years I've been there, and um, I had always wanted to work there. I'd, I'd identified it as a place where I just loved everything that was happening there for a long time. So getting to work there. Um, was a bit of a dream come true for me. It's been great. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How cool. And yeah. you've been there for nearly four years? Yeah. Yep. So I think, yeah, somewhere between three and a half and four years. I think it sort of started towards the start of the year um, in 2011. Wow. Yeah. I think that's about the time uh, I was getting involved a little bit. Not yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Not in any kind of paid official capacity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in an important way, too. You, I, I, we were talking before, and you were talking about being a part of the advisory committee, which... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, is a really great role, and, and um, didn't continue on um, for some reason. That, that was sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It kind, kind of, of rolled faded. into nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I it think made me feel as, as, like, I think I was probably, like, 20... Three or something, yeah. Twenty four, maybe feel so important. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm on an advisory committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is great, and I think that's one of the things that Express has always done incredibly well is having um, a dedication to actually working with young people instead of working for young people. And yep. one of the reasons I'm lazy, leaving my job is um, because I really believe that someone young should have my job, mm. and so I, um, I'm thirty four, which is you know not over the hill, but it's more the idea that our programs finish for people at 30. Yeah. And so I kind of think, well, I'm well and truly, I started when I was, I just turned 31. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I just snuck in there. Like I was <laughs> at 31. It's fine. You're like a year out of the programs. That's fine. But the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, you know, really should be people under 30 or at least close to 30 making the decisions about what happens with funding and what projects we do and what programs we do. So it's, it's, um, selfishly I'd love to stay and work there forever because I think that it's one of the greatest um you know organizations you really have a lot of freedom and you do work that you really believe in but on the other hand it's kind of like oh I gotta stand by my principles I gotta let someone young and enthusiastic come and take the job wow so it'll be good well that that's I mean that's kind of amazing that you are putting your principles that high yeah you know 
Well, I think it's it's part of the you know part of the reason you come to organisations like this is because they do make those things possible, and mm. so it's the same with say SinFM in Melbourne, where oh, yeah. you know it's entirely run by young people, and um, people are, are often quite surprised about that. Like, oh, I wouldn't think people under thirty could run an entire you know, and there are hundreds of thousands of dollars involved in that organisation, and. You know, they have directors who, you know, and general managers who manage those budgets and run those businesses and they do as good, if not better, than, you know, most of their other counterparts in the same industry. So I think Express has a great record of doing the same thing, um, having young people direct what happens. I think that's pretty important. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, always, uh, I'm always surprised when someone, like, in their 20s is doing this kind of amazing thing. But then I, but I'm surprised frequently enough that I shouldn't be surprised anymore. Yeah. I'm not sure why every mean. time I'm, you know, like, I, like meeting the co-directors, we're, we are, sorry, this is, we are live from the National Young Writers Festival right now, uh, and I've been talking to some of the co-directors here, and they're, they're mostly younger than me or my age. Yeah. And um, that shouldn't surprise me. They're extremely competent, wonderful people. I've known that for years. Like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course they can do things. Yep. Like, yeah, absolutely. And I still have that all the time. You know, like I run an organization where it's, you know, practically everybody we work with is under 30. And I'm forever coming <laughs> up against things where I'll say, oh, yeah, and someone will say to me, oh, how old is that person? And we'll be talking about it in context of whether they're still eligible for certain programs because some of ours stop at 25 and mm. some of our under 18, some of the 30-year-olds. And I'll say, oh, I'm pretty sure oh no they must be under 30 and then you go and figure out what age they actually are and turns out they're 19 and you're like holy crap at 19 (laughs) I was doing not a lot not a lot definitely nothing on that scale um so it's kind of it's really exciting to see young people who are just like bull in a china shop I'm going for everything I'm gonna do all this stuff and I'm gonna do it really well and they do it's amazing it's amazing Brody Carmody uh oh Brody oh Let's I watched not talk him, about that guy. Let's not talk about him. No. <laughs> I watched him read last night and uh, a short story that he had published in, I think it was the best... He was reading yeah, from the yeah. book, I think I saw the cover, it was Best Australian Writing, yep. 2013 or 14? 14, I think it 14. just came out, yeah. And he is 21. Yep. So stuff that guy. Uh, yep. He also <laughs> works as a journalist and he, he is does. the editor of a student media publication. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, and his tweets are amazing, amazing <laughs> and erudite and yeah. informed. I, I had to tell him the other week, I was like, you know, I pretty much get my news from you now. Like, I, <laughs> I just, I don't bother reading the paper. I'm like, oh, Brody tweeted about that. Okay, I'll go about that. He's figured this out for me. Um, yeah, and, and he manages to do his own amazing creative work. You know, he writes yeah. poetry and he writes stories and he writes his journalism. So, yes, he's definitely one of my... Um, my disgustingly talented examples. Yes. So yeah. young. Yeah. Uh, and I really, I try not to say that too often to my young friends uh, who are like, you know, 21, 22, and, and to say things like to them, like, you're so accomplished, for, you're so uh, mature for someone so young because um, I realize how that sounds. And um, if I, if, so if, if someone who was, oh, I don't know how, I can't do the math, but someone who was like six or seven years older than me yeah. was going, well, you're so mature for your age. I'd be like, I'm an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Please Thanks. don't talk down to me anymore. Yeah. 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 It's true. So I do, I do try, but, but sometimes I just think about how unfocused I was yeah. at that age. Oh my God. Yes. Unfocused, but also I, I think I've always been focused on wanting to have a writing career, but I didn't know what was out there. 
Yeah. And I've talked to my friend Zenobia Frost, who's a really excellent poet, yes, about is. this. And she just, it seems like, she's one of those people who just seems like they came out of the womb knowing to, to go and, you know, to write to publishers and to go to this and to enter that. And she is such a hardworking, knowledgeable resource. Yeah. I'm like, how did you know this? And she's like, I don't know. I just... <laughs> you just do. She yeah. just went and found stuff and there it was. Yeah. Um... Yeah. I just I didn't find find it about VoiceWorks, um, the the literary magazine that Express Media publishes until I was like twenty three I think. Yep. And so of course you you're only eligible until you're twenty five. Yeah. Um. So short two years. It was really short because I only got up the guts to actually submit when I was like twenty four and a half. Yep. And I got rejected. Yep. And I could have grown and gotten yep. better and more confident, but I was already too old. Yep. So old. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I completely relate. The first time that I sort of started to know about Express Media and um, VoiceWorks was um, about the same age. And uh, I was I think it was about 23 and I was working in student media and I was kind of looking around trying to see what other, you know, kind of young publications were out there and was lucky enough to meet Richard Watts, who since then um, oh, yeah. has become a real mentor for me and um, is, is just such a generous, amazing um Man, but he at the time was working um, as an artistic director and general manager at Express. We were a much smaller then, um, and through him, I got to know about VoiceWorks and meet those editors and kind of get to see what was happening at the magazine. And I never built up the um, the confidence to really um, submit again until I was about twenty four. I got rejected, and then I got sidetracked with everything else that was happening in life. But it's same thing. Sometimes I think about it and think about all those years wasted that I could have been, you know, getting better, working yeah. on that work and doing it. And it's something that I'm better at now, going after things and thinking, well, you know, you don't have all the time in the world. Just do what you can while you can. Absolutely. Yeah. I have to say that I, so I, I got my undergrad degree and then um, during my final semester started, my health declined. Yeah. And then uh, not long after I graduated, I got diagnosed with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so I have spent like all that sort of post-uni time uh, yeah. where most people are building their careers just, just like in a haze just trying yeah. to get by I'm yeah. doing better now but um I feel like that has like influenced my I'm really trying not to say journey because we're not on the bachelor trajectory. Australia trajectory is good <laughs> that's a good thank you yeah. um yeah I feel like I have uh become more precious with my time and the way I spend it um and also much more organized and hardworking yeah because you have to be organized when your brain doesn't work properly a lot of the time yeah you got to write everything down yep so everything how how has uh having chronic fatigue syndrome affected the way you work i guess yeah um dramatically is the short answer um so i um when i was first diagnosed i was about 26 um and um I was with the partner that I'm with now, um, who was really great and really supportive. Um, and I was running my own publishing, small publishing venture. Um, so oh, we were wow. publishing magazines that were um, uh, review publications of um, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, um, Melbourne Film Festival and so forth. And it was something that had kind of grown out of our student media um, experience. And so I was doing that and Tim was supporting me. He was doing the design um and we had a chance to make some really great work and some really great publications and I really loved doing it um but 
I, that was sort of when chronic fatigue started to really become a part of my life because I kept going through these cycles of like manic working and then absolutely crushing. And it mm. used to be that I would go through manic work and then at the end of the festival or the end of the publication, I would crash and it was like, oh, isn't this exhausting? Um, and about the same time, I was also directing what used to be another part of TINA, which was the National Student and Emerging Media Conference. Um, and so same thing, I would do that and then I would crash out for, you know, a month or whatever. And I sort of knew that was a bit extreme to basically be in bed for a month. But I was like, well, that's just how it is with me. Um, and so I was doing those cycles and then I started realising like there was one um, festival publication we did where I crashed the day before the festival started. Oh, so I'd been doing all this preparation work and then I just crashed. And so it was humiliating and it was... Um, you know, really difficult. Um, and I still remember the day really clearly. I remember um, having to call Tim, who was at work, and just say to him, I am not okay and I need you to be here. And um, he came and I called my mum and I said, I'm not okay, I need you to be here. And in the back of my head, and I don't think I've ever spoken to either of them about it, but in the back of my head, I was like, I think they're going to have to take me to a mental institution. Like, I think I have to go to a psych institution. I think I'm having a breakdown. Mm. And so by the time they got home, I had kind of was like, well, that's what's going to happen now. And um, spoke to both of them. And they're both very pragmatic people and they were both incredibly worried about me, but they also are probably not... Um, you know, at that time before we'd gone through everything we've been through since, you know, I think my mum in particular was kind of like, well, you know, you kind of need to pull yourself together and you've got to, you know, get on with stuff. Not that she wasn't supportive, but that her way is always just pushing through. And so we kind of sat there and they kind of talked me into calming a bit and Tim was like, well, that's it, you know, we just won't do this publication and we won't do this and we won't do that. Um, and so the work stuff sort of got resolved but it was that point forward where I had to face the fact that this wasn't, you know, crashing after working really hard. This was something that was happening and, you know, it was bigger than that. So that's when I started to, you know, kind of seek medical support and, and look for, you know, what I could do and how I could avoid this happening. So in those early years, and I still have a lot of hang up about that, about the things that I did wrong and the people I let down and the disappointments, you know, that came with that. Um, and I think I still carry that chip on my shoulder a little bit about my work too, where it's taken me a lot of years to feel, no, it's okay, I'm capable. And yes, I've made mistakes, but that's not everything. And so in terms of the way it impacts my career and my trajectory stuff, it just stalled, like it stalled completely. And, you know, I stopped publishing those things and I um, was doing some freelance writing, but very little. And I just sort of, you know, faded out of my own life particularly from a career perspective for a really long time that's when we moved to Perth um, which was in part because it was really painful to see my whole what should have been my life continuing on around me and so my peers were doing amazing things and work was happening that I would have loved to have been involved with but just couldn't be so yeah I think and I look at those people now that were my peers then and I'm still not doing you know like if I compare myself to them I'm still not doing the same things on the same levels that they are but having said that, um, I also learned a lot of really valuable lessons um, about what was important to me and what mattered and what work I did want to do. Because like you said, you know, you've got to take what you can and make every, you know, bit of that energy or that time matter because otherwise you're just going to be going around in circles. Yeah, and wearing yourself out yep. and thinking, okay, so I spent energy I could have been using walking in the park with my family or my dog or whatever. Yep. 
I spent that at the desk doing admin. Awesome. I don't want to be doing this anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. And what did I get out of that? Did I enjoy this project that I'm doing all that admin for? Or did I get the most out of that? No, not at all. No. So, yeah. It's a constant means... balancing act that I think most people who are... Uh, and obviously, I haven't really worked in other industries that, industries that much, but in mm. the creative industries, you really have to kind of forge your own path. So most people are doing many, many things at once and yep. are... Um, I want to say jack jacks of all trades, but they're really masters of all trades. Yeah. Because um, you have to be. Yeah, for sure. It's particularly, you know, I think, um, and I, might, I know you would find this as well, the administration involved in being a good creative is really extensive. Like people yeah. think it's like, oh, okay, well, that must be like 10% of your job. Hell no. That's like, you know, probably 60% of your job, maybe 40% you get to be creative and that's great. Yeah. But 60% of your job is, you know, invoicing. It is researching where you can write for this or how to get your book published or mm-hmm. I'm going to put on a show. Now I've got to go and talk to 50 venue managers and find the right one. And Promotion, know, promotion, oh, promotion. Oh, oh, if, if I could never do marketing and publicity again, <laughs> I would be a very happy lady. If I could just not do, if I could not do my own promote, like yeah. for myself. Yeah. Oh God. Yep. Trying to write all of this copy about yourself yep. because there's no one else to do it. Yep. It's just horrible. It really is. <laughs> I mean, I should say, like, in, in like you know, put it in perspective. It's not the worst thing in the world to try and talk yourself up for strangers. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is. If you get tired of writing about yourself in the third person, Leifa is, oh, Leifa is tired of writing this shit. That's yeah, what yeah. Is. Caitlin's yeah. creative practice is not happening because she's writing this right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that. A lot of that. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, good times. But I know what you mean about um, moving cities um, to kind of, I guess, escape. Uh, I, I, I'm from Perth, um, and so I left Perth about two and a half years ago. And there were lots of reasons that I left. It was just a spontaneous um, move that worked out for me. Yep. But I think looking back, um, and I, don't, I only really start to understand it in retrospect, but I think it was hard to watch all my friends that I went through uni with uh, and friends who I had before that who were just doing wonderful things with their career. And I'm so happy for them. They're just killing it. And it's amazing. But I I, I just was always in bed. <laughs> yep. And um, all of the, the Facebook invites to parties and, yep. and, oh, yeah, it just gets... It's cumulative. Eventually, you just go. Yeah. This is too hard. Yeah. I don't think I was, uh, und- like recognizing that that was difficult at the time, but I was still quite. I was quite upset that my life had been stalled by this illness, and was yep. quite angry about yeah. that. I struggled with that a lot, and I don't think my partner at the time really didn't understand the depth of, like you know, I would I went to counselling and. Um, I went to see a particular psychologist who was really quite helpful in lots of ways, but who kind of put the hard word on me, like you can't keep working in these cyclical, cyclical, you know, kind of project environments where you have this big, huge task and it's all going to come in one very stressful period and then, you know, fade away. And he was like, that's really the opposite of what you need for your own health. Mm. And so it really made me reassess. And I was like, well, I can't do my own publishing then. And, and thinking about the kinds of work that I wanted to do. That was when I had worked on um, student and emerging media conference was when I suddenly realized that programming was a, a real passion of mine and, and working with other people on their creative um, endeavors and, and creating live events and things like that. And I was like, how do you ever work in events? How do you work in events management or festivals and 
not have great periods of stress. And so for a while there, I started um, doing some other study and thinking that I would have to just completely change paths in terms of my career. Mm. And that was really hard because I didn't want to, you know, I was was absolutely passionate about what I was doing and I felt like I just started to get somewhere. Um, And you do, you feel like your life has been stolen and, and it's really difficult even when people are very understanding and you don't want them, you know, you don't want them to stop inviting you to their birthday. You don't want them to stop saying to you, do you want to, you know, grab a drink, but it makes it really hard to feel like all you ever do is say no. And, you know, the friends who would do nothing but come to me during that time are, you know, (laughs) amazing and just did the the absolute greatest at keeping me sane Mm. Um, because they would literally never take that no as an offensive you know, thing they wouldn't say, oh, well, you just don't care enough. Yeah, I'm um, not trying hard enough in this friendship yeah. or whatever. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, those people were really great. And there was a long time where my life was, you know, and this was around the time that Facebook had started to get bigger and Twitter had just kind of become a thing. And there was a lot of talk about whether you had real friends or online friends and what the difference oh. with that was. And I'm so um, sick of that conversation. I know, I know. Been <laughs> for a long time. Well, this is yeah. like you know, over ten, like ten years ago, and yeah. Um, and I was just like, are you kidding me? If I didn't have Facebook, if I didn't have Twitter, if I wasn't able to talk to people from my bed, I would I, like social isolation would be a whole nother level. And so those things and people who were prepared to accept that that was all I could do and give at that point were amazing. Um, and mm. that really made a difference. And it, like I said, there was, you know, three or four friends who would just say, do you want to come out? And I go, no, nah, I can't. And they, knowing I'm an insomniac too helped, they would know that they could say, all right, well, I'm going to go for drinks. And because we lived in Collingwood, so it was pretty central for around. So it was like, I'll come over after, I've, you know, had a few drinks and they would just come over and, you know, sit and um, watch a lot of late night rage and, you know, oh, brilliant. Um, just hang out. And it was fine. It was like, as long as you can last and as long as we can do whatever, then that's okay. And that made a huge difference. But yeah, moving to Perth was exactly that. It was okay. Well, I can't handle all of this. I'm right here and I could be doing this if I was okay. Maybe if I have some distance, it'll give me some time to actually, you know, shut down and start to deal with some of this health stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was really good for that. And did you find that you could, with that distance in Perth, kind of start to um, figure out like a routine for your life, like a lifestyle that was more suited to your health? Definitely. Um, and so part of that grieving and part of that reorganization was, um, starting to assess what was important. And once I took out all of the obligations and the the kind of should stuff, like all this stuff I thought I should do and all this stuff I felt guilty about not doing, I started realizing, and especially when you're far away, you start to think about what you actually do miss. And so by the time I came home, I was like, well, all this other stuff is noise because I didn't miss that. I didn't wish I was able to do those things Um, and certainly it gave me time to focus on instead of spending my energy on the you know kind of oh okay well I should go to this thing so I'd go to that thing and then I'd be in bed for three days it was kind of a slower pace of life so it it enabled me to figure out what my baseline was I think yeah Um, okay this is how much energy it takes to you know get up and have breakfast be awake for the whole day go to bed at night, try to get some sleep, you know, maybe do a little bit of writing here and there, um, spend time with my partner, um, you know, walk to go and get a coffee. That's how much energy that takes. And so once I knew that, then it was knowing, you know, how much energy I'd have to kind of bank up for a few days in order to do something more exciting or, you know, vice versa. How long it would take me to recover if I did something more than whatever it took that day. Wow. Mm. Did you go through that period as well? 
I think I'm still going through it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. And you mentioned the guilt about needing, always needing special treatment. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that I sometimes think I cope really well with and sometimes don't at all. And I think that comes into, um, you know, the way that you feel about your own illness. And I still carry a lot of, um, that's something I talked about in the panel, I still carry a lot of, you know, oh, is this real? Maybe I should try harder. Maybe I should do this. And and then every once in a while I have one of those really great days and um, and I realise that every day, you know, I'm doing a great job. I'm, yeah. I'm really, you know, I've held down a job where, yes, my um, employer has been really wonderful and I work from home two days a week, um, but I do four days a week overall and I work my ass off and I've done great at that job and I have a four-year-old son and, he's fantastic and we love each other and that's you know a great testament I still have my partner and he has you know been a huge support but it also takes work to make that relationship happen and so you know I do do great but every so often you can't help it you just hear this voice in the back of your head that's like am I really as sick as I think I am do I really have this illness do I really deserve special treatment and also what toll is this taking on everyone around me you know yeah um I see that with my partner I see that with my my parents are a great support. My mum in particular is incredible with me. Um, and sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, oh, my God, the woman just needs a rest. Like, she, <laughs> she needs to stop, you know, having to worry about what's going on with me so much. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely that sense of guilt and, and balancing what is happening with you with, you know, your wider network. And even, I mean, in my workplace too, sometimes asking for that special treatment has been really difficult even though the reception has been good um, and my workplace have been incredibly supportive, um, asking was terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know what my rights were really and I was really lucky I happened to come across a, um, uh, the ME CFS organisation in the UK um, had put out this sort of fact sheet that you could hand to your employer oh, great. that would explain what it was generally, like what um, ME CFS is. And what might help um, people who have that to help them to, you know, continue to do their job. And it was amazing because once I found that, I felt entitled to. It was like, oh, other people have to do this, so it's okay that I do this. Um, yeah, it's, so, not, it's not just you being bad at life. Yes, yeah, and this absolutely. And this is something I've talked to other people on this podcast about too. It's like when you realise, oh, I'm, I have to deal with something extra. Yep. Like, I'm, I, yeah, you, you compare yourself to people around you who are uh, not dealing with, a, with an illness, a yep. chronic illness or a disability, and you hold yourself to that standard, which is... Madness. I know. And we all know it's illogical. <laughs> of course. Of course. And if you told me that's what you were doing, I'd say, that's crazy, Caitlin, don't do that. And then you would catch me doing the exact same thing and say the same thing. But that's so true. We're so hard on ourselves. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's why I really loved that Invisible Illness panel today was hearing Fez and Robbie both as well talk about their illnesses and the yeah, amount. That, that, sorry, that was uh, Adolfo. Um, Arandres. Oh, Arandres and Robbie Coleman. Coleman, Coleman yeah. yeah. Um, Very cool dudes. Yeah, they are. They were great. That was a really enjoyable panel. Um, and, you know, talking to them about the, you know, there are advantages of hidden illnesses in some ways, but there are also some really, you know, 
significant downsides. Um, yeah. <laughs> surprisingly. I think, yeah. I think the advantages are the surprising part. Yeah, yeah true, true. <laughs> um, by that I mean advantages as opposed to having something that's very visible and in people's faces and oh, reminds them all the time. Not so much that having the disability is an advantage. <laughs> I don't know. The only well, advantage that I think <laughs> that my illness has given me is that in that time where I had to figure out what I wanted to spend my time on and what was important to me, um, I really became a lot kinder with myself. Mm. I used to be a lot more of a perfectionist. I used to be very hard on myself and I used to be very um, kind of, well, particularly work-focused and judged myself very um, predominantly on my work. And when I was sick and I had no work to judge myself on, um, I had to think about the other things that were important to me and the things that were important to my life. And so, you know, it made me reprioritize some things that I may not have gotten to or may not have figured out. And I think I would be a lot less happy if that hadn't happened. And sometimes I see other people around me struggling with things. And particularly now that I'm in my 30s and some of my friends having kids. And so I see them quite often have to deal with things like, who am I if I'm not? who this person, you know, if I'm not a lawyer, who am I, you know, Mm. and and once they're out of the workforce because they've had kids and they want to stay home with their child, but they also love their work and how do they do that? And some of those questions are things that I had to ask when I got ill. Um, And so I think it it actually allowed me to think a lot more about my life and what was important to me and to be, I don't worry so much about all those things that seem really important from the outside, but actually weren't. Um, Yeah. It's an advantage. That's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I, I've I call for a long time. I've called chronic fatigue syndrome the blurst thing that ever happened to me, <laughs> because yes. it was been the best of times and it's been the blurst of times. Yes. But um, it has really, like, when you're just, and I, I say surviving. Um, it's not a fatal. It's not usually a fatal illness. No, people not very have, frequently. People, there are records of people dying from chronic fatigue syndrome. Yep. And I don't know exactly what they died, like what killed them. But I know for me it would probably be a combination of like um, starvation. Yeah. And just, just the kind of not being able to take care of myself stuff. Yep. And muscle wasting away. And, yeah. You know, for, for people who are severely bed bound. Yeah, absolutely. Or if I needed to get to help, I wouldn't be able to because I would yep. be too weak. That kind of thing. Yep. So, I mean, that, that kind of thing is, is probably... Um, uh, close to everyone, those dangers. Yeah, I feel the closeness more than I used to. Yep. Um, and I I first got chronic fatigue when I was sixteen, so this has lived with me for a long time. That's a long time. It's a long time. I'm twenty eight now. Um, but I've had a still had a really awesome time, and yep. I think that's why I'm making this podcast. It's like. I, I, I see on for, online forums and on social media so many young people who are just so sad. Yeah. And, hey, I'm sad too a lot of the time. Yeah. But bloody hell, there's some good times. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is one way where you and I are both really lucky and I know another um, mutual acquaintance of ours, Amber, um, yeah. your house is the same in that your, your creative work, because it's independent a lot of the time and so you're writing, you can do on your own and it doesn't have to be in an office nine to five. Like if my soul's passion was to be a lawyer, using that example again, I could not have chronic fatigue and do that because it requires me to operate externally in the world in a way I am not capable of. Mm. But 
as a writer, I can have some of it. And it might not be my career is not where I want it or I'm not able to do a lot of the things that I want to do, but I can still have my own creative practice. And that's what keeps me going is being able to have that passion that I can tap into and work on and um, come out of it feeling like I've had some sense of release. And I think that it's really hard for young people who are in a, a similar situation to us who don't have that because I don't know what you would do with those hours where your brain did work and you did want to achieve something and you did want to, you know, challenge yourself because those hours do exist. And oh, yeah. when they're there, you know, I know what I need to do to take advantage of them and that's great and I'll do that. But if your passion is to, you know, be a lawyer or do whatever, then it's just another frustration for you. And I think that would be really difficult. Mm. And I think sometimes in the, as we said before, constant commentary on social media and the internet and its role in our lives and, and uh, devices like iPhones and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I think that the, I have found the commentary to vastly disregard um, disabled people. Oh, like yeah. the impact it has on the lives of people who are, have low mobility, who are bed bound. Yeah. It's, uh, without social media, I wouldn't have the amazing, a lot of the amazing relationships well, I have you and in I my probably life. wouldn't know each other. Well, exactly, because yeah. we met, we met um, via emails and, yeah. and then Twitter mainly. Yeah, and we've we're stayed face- in contact. We're Facebook friends. Yeah, it's so good to be <laughs> Facebook it, friends. Isn't it funny how it goes like, it's like you start off Instagram, like, you know, with people, it's like Instagram, okay, and then Twitter, whoa, yeah. and then it's like Facebook friends, it's official, we're, yeah. we're real friends. I think we're friends <laughs> now, I think it's happened, but it's true. <laughs> And, and I do think that um, it is vastly um, underestimated um, for all kinds of disability, but, you know, particularly speaking to the stuff that we know about, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, and I'm always surprised by, you know, you and I worked together for a long time before we <laughs> realised or knew that each other had, you know, the same struggles in the same kind of family of illnesses. Um, and it's the same for people that I've worked really closely with where I find out, you know, maybe a year into knowing them, oh, I had or have chronic fatigue syndrome or I have an autoimmune disorder. And, uh, it's, it's been kind of nice to be able to find that out by staying in contact with people that, you know, not particularly close to, but who might sometimes mention that stuff. But also there are some really supportive communities online for particularly young people. And we met someone today who I was like, oh, I've got to tell you about this, this Facebook group, because, you know, there are lots of people who have autoimmune issues or ME or whatever who, you know, kind of talk about those challenges. And that is really helpful. And I know I go looking for that information when I'm coming up against a new struggle. I'm often really heartened to see other people talking about it. And it is that cathartic thing of feeling like you're not alone, which at 4 a.m. when you've been awake for three days is really important. I absolutely love uh, online ME, CFS, Fibro, Lyme communities because yeah. <laughs> there'll be those 2.30 a.m. messages, anyone up? Yeah. And then there'll just be like all these likes and comments. The thread yeah. will just keep... And I'm like, thank you. Because that's the worst. I, I just... Oh, when the insomnia is bad and I'm up till 5 a.m., yep. what do I do in that time? That's the worst part. Yep. Writing you, writing and stuff, like, I write and it was that kind of thing, but, like, it's yeah, but also... you need a certain amount of function for that, and that's, that's not what true. you have at 2.30 in the morning sometimes. That is very true. And also, I find it's all up in my head, yep. and that's the worst place to be when I'm feeling bad and I'm feeling like I'm failing at being a, yep. a good, normal, functioning person. Yep. So it's really great to just um, have someone to chat to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
And, uh, you know, I think it's really funny because, it, you know, we were talking about, like, it's, it's an underestimated people talking about the evils of social media. But I have that with my parenting friends as well. Like, you know, um, having a mother's group of people who, you know, kind of similarly minded to me and... Um, a lot of us would be up late at night and, you know, breastfeeding our kids and we'd be sitting there and, you know, you'd be texting on your phone, oh God, I'm up for another, you know, 3am feed or whatever. And that, that connection is kind of discounted in public discourse, I think. I think people see social media as a fake something. And to me, it's like, are you kidding? Those are the things that get me through, you know, knowing that someone else is up with their baby at 3am or, you know, while I'm sitting in my son's room while he refuses to let me leave because, you know, he's convinced there are these magical cracker machines <laughs> live up to his bed. You know, and so I'm sitting there and he doesn't want me to do anything. He just wants me to sit there and I have to wait until he's deep enough asleep. So I'm sitting there playing, you know, a game on my phone and... You know, all of that is what makes the other stuff bearable. Because if I was sitting there in the dark with nobody to talk to and nobody to relate to, whether that be my insomnia because of my own insomnia or my child-induced insomnia, (laughs) um, that would be really hard. I would find that really difficult. But then I think it's also, and something we've talked about before, is, you know, the the changing attitude of or the changing ability that you have with this illness too. And one day it's great and one day it's not. And I'm always in awe of the fact that you can perform. Like where you sign up to perform and say, well, that's what I'm going to do. How do you do that? Um, anxiety attacks? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's healthy. That's preemptive great. anxiety attacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's something I, I love. I love performing. Yeah. So it's something that I push myself to do, even though my body is probably, it's probably not the best thing for my body. Yeah. Like it's, uh, obviously I make it through fine, but it's all those weeks where I'm like, oh my God, what if on the day I can't get out of bed? Yeah. You know, um, no, it's very stressful, but it's something I really love doing. And it's kind of like, even though I keep asking myself, should I keep doing this for my health? There comes a point where you go, and I know we were talking about this earlier when we were talking about like chocolate and stuff. There comes a point where you go, okay, I, for the, for the good of my health, I could cut all this stuff out, but then what would I be living for? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And particularly when it comes to performing or any creative work, I think, um, yeah, you have to know what's worth it. And I think that's the important question. It's not that you should never necessarily push yourself or know that you're maybe sacrificing two days in bed or whatever it's going to take. But it is about identifying those things and going at them really hard and saying, okay, well, this is going to be worth it. Because yeah. if it's not worth it, then like we were saying before, it's like, oh, why did I put myself through this? And I've found myself in that situation where I've been like, I thought I wanted this. I do not want this. Like, I, yes. if I don't have, if I'm not prepared to give up all these other things, then... I'm not, I'm not invested enough to do this, which, yeah. yeah, can be really difficult. But performing, I imagine, because both mentally and physically it takes so much out of you, mm. that's an amazing challenge to sign yourself up for. I will say, though, I, thank you. I, I, I will say I'm, I'm lucky because I'm, I've never really been a very nervous public speaker, yep. so I don't have that layer to deal with. Yep. Um, I mean, obviously, if I'm doing a new work that I haven't tried out or if it's particularly vulnerable or if I'm doing a, a joke that I'm not really sure is gonna land yeah might, might cause some trouble yeah um i get a bit nervous but it's really the health stuff yeah that, and i i i never have never had anxiety outside of health concerns yeah that is totally what i get my anxiety about yeah um so it's a difficult thing when it comes to diagnoses um mm. because uh a lot of people who've got um chronic fatigue get mistakenly diagnosed with depression yeah. it's like oh you can't get out of bed you're sad depression what if i'm sad because i can't get out of bed what if i'm anxious because i can't 
do life yep. <laughs> properly yep. or the way I want to. Yep. I don't know how anyone could have severe chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and I don't think I have it severely um, now. I, I certainly was bed bound for a number of years. Um, I spent the vast majority of my time in bed. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be one of those people who, when they get pregnant, um, actually feels better. So I was, was like snapping my fingers and going back five years in time. My health was amazing. I felt great. And I was that way all the way through until my son was about one when things started to kind of deteriorate. But again, they obviously haven't deteriorated to the same point. I work four days a week and I'm really happy doing lots of things that I wouldn't have been able to do before. But, um, you know, I think if you have that, when you're at that point in chronic fatigue syndrome where you cannot leave bed, who wouldn't be depressed? Right. Like, how can you not be depressed? I, I don't know how anyone could maintain any level of positive thinking about the world when you don't get to have the world. Yeah. Um, and what do they all, what do people always say to you when you're depressed? Exercise, exercise. Yep. I would, I, you, people just die. People prescribe exercise to me. Yeah. These are not doctors. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. All the time. Yeah. And I'm like, do you understand? Oh my god, do you understand? Yeah. Like, well, it's easy. Just start with a just like a light walk for twenty minutes. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Sure. Yeah, I'll get no, right no. on that. Of course. <laughs> I, I I get frustrated sometimes because I feel like, and maybe this is maybe I'm being narcissistic, but I do feel like anyone who knows me well enough knows that I'm a hard worker. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. I'm always pushing myself. It's yeah. actually a bit of a problem. Yeah. And. Uh, so why wouldn't they think that I would already be trying to do as much as yeah. I can, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I completely relate to that. Um, and was, again, something we were talking about earlier is that, you know, all of the helpful suggestions. That come, <laughs> come goji berries. Have you tried goji, goji berries? berries? Oh, like, oh so really? Good. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> my, my warm milk uh, example is always the one I use. for. You've got insomnia. Have you tried warm milk? <laughs> yes. Yes, I have, and I will drown you in that warm milk if you don't stop <laughs> suggesting it. <laughs> can't handle it you're like i may not be able to cure my illness but i can stop you talking yeah get your face in this milk i will do whatever it takes to stop you from suggesting warm milk again oh my god yeah, i really i would just love to come back with um lactose intolerant oh my to gosh, see what that's they so do great. i'm gonna try that. which is true i actually that. i think i have had oh someone gosh. say to me warm milk and i was like i'm lactose intolerant and they just didn't have a they, they were oh, like because oh. you could see them they could see them like floundering trying to come up with some alternate cure yeah. that maybe I hadn't thought of. They're like, I need... I milk do the same thing? I can't, <laughs> I can't walk away from this conversation with her without curing her ills. Yeah. Which is a... It comes from a good place. Sure. Most of the time. Yeah. No, sometimes it really just seems like a certain amount of um, self-absorption, maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. they're like, um, I need to offer an opinion. Yeah. I yeah, really don't. Sure. I really don't want to have a go at people who are trying to be helpful. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes. Um, yeah, for sure. I think I think people do think they're being helpful, and I do. I think it does come from a good place of, oh, I don't like hearing that life isn't as you know positive for you as it could be, and maybe I can offer some you know some kind of response. But yeah, don't. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, don't. just trust that the person living with this yeah. has explored the avenues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe wait till they ask yeah. because honestly yeah. if they're desperate if they're trying to leave no stone unturned it's not like they're not going to ask yeah yeah <laughs> and also you know if you if you've known me for a while and you know what I generally do and what I'm about and you know whatever like well, frequently my poor partner will say to me oh well you know 
you really haven't been practicing good sleep hygiene and I'll be like oh god you're right you know you are I'm I'm you know in bed most of the day doing my work instead of going to you know my kitchen table or my study or whatever to do my job um and so that's you know you can suggest something you know what I'm like you know what my pitfalls are that's okay um but more like oh I've just met you um and for some I don't even know why the CFS thing comes up but it's literally it's almost always strangers you know yeah like, yeah uh, usually it's because I'm not really talking about CFS it's because I'm talking about lack of sleep or insomnia or whatever and then people are very oh I've got the solution for that um and it's like I don't use the word insomnia lightly. Like a lot of people say insomnia when they mean I couldn't sleep last night. No, I have insomnia and I have done all the research. I got it covered. That's a discursive problem. Like how people will say I'm so depressed. And what they mean is I can't believe Lisa got kicked off the bachelor. (laughs) Not (laughs) not an example you personally relate to. I I pulled that from nowhere. (laughs) Just random example. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I do think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about people who um, self-label and kind of diagnose themselves, which is very easy to do. Mm. Um, and Google will help you immensely with that. Um, A but, good rule I have for my own mental health is yeah. I, I do not Google illnesses anymore. No, God. I, it, mm. No. <laughs> I have diagnosed with myself with a lot over the years. Yes, same. <laughs> and I just take in a thing to the doctor. Okay, so I'm thinking about this. And usually my doctor, she's shaking her head before I even yes. start. She's just like, stop already. I always say to people when they're talking about what you do in these illnesses that a good GP is absolutely the best thing that you can do. And I've seen lots of specialists, lots of different kinds of specialists. And I haven't found one yet that's been really great for me. But um, having a GP who's been willing to you know, go through whatever it takes to kind of chase down answers or listen to my latest ridiculous theory has made a huge difference. It's really nice to be able to discuss these theories with someone who's got access to yeah. blood tests and oh, can, yeah. can actually take some action. Yeah. Or can just immediately go, no. <laughs> no, that's not a thing. No. Um, my, the last time I went to have a blood test, um, I well, it wasn't the last time, but a few times ago, um, she was like, okay, we're going to retest you for everything because there's stuff going on and it's, you know, not really great and it's not really fitting with our diagnosis for you. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do all these blood tests. And so I went to go and have this blood test and the nurse was like, oh, there's some mistake. This is, this is like, I've never, ever done this many blood tests on a person. And so I don't know how many, <laughs> it wasn't that many liters, but it was like, you know, <laughs> they've got to do all the different containers. Yes. And she ended up, she had like 15 or 16 of these containers, wow. like taking up a whole thing. And, but she she rang the GP and was like, are you sure this is what you mean? And the GP was like, just do all the things, okay, all these things. Um, and so, you know, like that's really going the extra mile and mm, being mm. prepared to follow that through. And, and she was right. You know, there was stuff that showed up on that blood test that showed that, you know, what I'd been diagnosed wow. with wasn't um, covering everything that was happening with me. So, mm. yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> definitely avoiding Google, but also finding the right doctor to help you go through that stuff is really important. Yeah, that's that's the um the everlasting journey of someone with uh, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, I think, and probably a lot of get, other illnesses. Yeah, for sure. I just get tired of going to the doctor. Oh like, yeah, I just can't do it anymore. You know, e- every every now and again, I take a six month period off. Yeah, and I I think I've just I'm just coming off one of these periods where I was just like I stopped taking all of my supplements. Yep. I stopped going to the doctor about it. I stopped getting blood tests. I'm yep. fine. Like I'm fine. But it was just like I, for my mental health, I just need to not be yeah. constant. You feel like you're a forensic researcher. Yeah. Like, and yeah, 
Yeah, and you don't have the skill or expertise to be one. Yeah, I really need a house to take us all aside and just, like, go into hospital, spend a whole bunch of time and have him tell me it's not lupus. That would be cool. (laughs) That would be wonderful. That would be perfect, though, because he he could uh, diagnose you as house and then Hugh Laurie could just tell you nice jokes and sing songs. I love that. This sounds perfect. Why isn't this happening? Um, And speaking of songs, you mentioned that your friends would come around when you were housebound and they would watch Rage with you. Yep. Um, I'm always curious about what the sort of things that people pass the time with or, Mm -hmm. like, what they use to sort of soothe themselves. Like, is Rage a big thing with you? Do you love music? Um, I, I do like music, but I'm actually really slack with music and I'm hopeless with like, I'm always behind the times with music. So I will discover an album two years after everybody else got over it. I'll be like, Hey guys, this is great. Oh, they toured last year. Oh, I could have gone to that. You know, like, yes, I, I just, I miss totally everything. Me. Yeah. Um, but I really like it and I find music changes my mood dramatically. Um, yeah. so it's something I try to use more, um, because I'm certainly not a music aficionado or anything, but I do know what makes me feel more energetic or what will help to calm me. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, there was a while there where all I could do was kind of watch TV shows. A movie was too long Mm. for me to pay attention to, but a TV show was fine because it was like, you know, half an hour or 40 minutes or whatever. Um, And so I have watched a lot of TV, a lot of really old, excellent, terrible TV, um, all kinds. Um, but even when I'm so sick that I can't even really do that, so whether my eyes can't focus or I just can't even follow it, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. Um, and that has really helped me with my insomnia as well. Um, because I used to watch TV on my laptop, so I'd like download shows and watch them, and I would turn the screen off so I didn't have that blue light screen thing that keeps you awake. Um, but I had very particular things that I could listen to because the story has to be oral you know it can't mm. be a visual storytelling kind of model because obviously I'm not seeing it so a lot of Miss Marple and a lot of <laughs> Agatha Christie you know uh, movies and stuff and that's fine and great um and lots of murder mysteries um but then it sort of got to the point where even that was like this you know there'd be an explosion in the background that would like jolt me so when I discovered audiobooks that was really big for me because it's you know pretty monotonous most of the time and um I would find like the biggest longest series I could so listen to Harry Potter all the way through listen to all of the Game of Thrones all the way through how did I know that you were going to say Harry Potter yeah those audiobooks so great so good ah they're just magic they really are um and so yeah you know things like that are kind of the things that I fill my time with um I have increased the amount I can read now um which has been really wonderful because there were a few really dry years in there and obviously reading and writing is kind of my passion and so that was really hard knowing that I was reading things and even like I would just you know have a murder mystery and by the end of the book I'd be like he's who what like who was that guy who (laughs) when did we meet him I don't know what's going on Um, but something about listening I can actually take that in when it's an audio book that I can't you know it's too tiring to read so that's Mm. pretty great. I find sometimes, because I, I, I like listening to podcasts, yep. um, funnily enough, yeah. uh, I like podcasts. Um, and you've got one. This is so great. <laughs> what a coincidence. It's like when you nerd out hard enough about something, you end up making your own yep. one of those things. Um, but I have not so much gotten into audiobooks 
Because sometimes, like, because I, when I'm really symptomatic, my, my, I can't focus. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you, you have this as well. Um, so the problem is that I'll, I'll miss stuff when I'm, if, it, if I'm listening. So if I'm reading, I can go back and read the same sentence six yeah. times. But with an audiobook, I have to keep pausing and like, where was Stephen Fry? Was he doing, <laughs> I think he was doing Hermione voice when I tuned out. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, so I haven't, but with podcasts, um, there isn't usually a narrative. Yeah, that's true. And they're just chatting. Like we're doing now. Yeah. Um, and so I like to think that people could, could fall asleep, which someone did tweet me <laughs> after my first episode. Tone. Yeah, he was Aww. like, he was like, I liked your podcast, I fell asleep. And I was like, perfect. That's exactly that's what, what we're I... That's That's really... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. I want something that people can listen to when they don't really need to be listening. <laughs> yeah. 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 It doesn't sound like a criteria you would sit out with, but I totally agree. Um, yeah. Well, I'm trying to be different. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to make something that was not engaging. <laughs> tick, tick, really innovate Caitlin. the form. This is terrible. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that's true. I do listen to a lot of podcasts as well. And again, it's because... And this is another thing that people, you know, lament. Um, oh, we don't all, you know, watch TV together anymore. Well, we do. <laughs> That's what reality TV was made for. It's uh, so true. But also Live tweeting. Yeah. Um, but and I've loved writer's block have been like oh. um, setting up an appointment time for everyone to get together and run, and watch Twin Peaks and um, live tweet about it at the same time. And I'm obsessive about Twin Peaks, so this is just made for me. But it's really nice because they just say like on a Tuesday at this time we're going to watch this thing together, and it's like we could all be doing that. Um, and so, you know, I think we should do more of that, but Mm. also, um, podcasts, you know, they allow me to set my own time schedule. So when I'm feeling like I can pay attention to something, I can, you know, listen to it then and there. Whereas a radio show, the, you know, the idea that I'm going to be able to listen to hack every day on triple J and like follow that reportage is not necessarily going to happen, you know, at five o'clock, but I might be ready at seven o'clock. That might happen. And then, you know, that podcast is, is available and easy for me. I just love that being able to move time to suit my life. Yes. And it's all about, um, uh, adapting your lifestyle to suit you. Yeah. As opposed to adapting yourself, which is really difficult to suit your lifestyle. I, I've seen a lot of friends try and get into careers and they were like, and I'm one of them. And they're like, I can just, um, change my mind and my preferences and I can just make this work. I, I'm miserable, but I will just slog it out because, yeah. because I'm attached to doing this, you know, totally valid. We all do it. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I just have to eventually go. And I think the nice thing about creative industries is that you can kind of, um, drag and drop yeah. stuff a bit like into your career and yeah. kind of make it the shape you want. The, the cost is, is wages. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> the cost, oh. the cost is, um, so salary, I think. Yeah. And yeah. the, and there are some organizations that try and organize benefits. I know there's an organization, I can't remember the name, but they try and organize, um, like a kind of fund so that visual artists can take paid sick leave if oh, they wow. need to. That's a great idea. I maybe I I maybe like have got this completely wrong and this is actually something I made up. <laughs> but it's a great idea. But if anyone's Someone listening, it. make it happen. Yeah. Um but yeah, those kind of things that freelancers, the kind of security freelance freelancers don't just get. Don't have. Yeah. And absolutely. you're just about to become a freelancer again. I am. So yeah. I was about to say, how are you going to deal with that? And I was like, what a horrible question. No, no that's not horrible at all. Are you going to be okay? <laughs> uh, I'm destitute. I'm taking donations. No, I'm, I'm really lucky. Um, 
you know, and again, this is that, you know, the, the privilege that you have when you have a partner, mm. I have a partner. And so, um, he, um, has a steady job and, and earns enough that, um, you know, that the urgent financial stuff, we have, a you know, a baseline of security, um, with his job. And then, you know, kind of the choice, like I've talked about, there's lots of reasons I've chosen to move on from Express. One is particularly because it's kind of time for me to move on. But another part of it is that I have felt for a long time like I'm putting a lot into that job that um, maybe I could be using on other things in terms of energy. Um, and so choosing to stop was me also choosing to say, okay, well, I'm at a point where my son starts school next year, so um, oh, this summer is kind of the last time I'm going to have him home all the time to myself. Um, I know. And, uh, like, school holidays will happen and stuff, but at the moment I at least have him three days a week. Um, yeah. And so it was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just have him, you know, at home with me for a while longer over summer while his kindergarten is shut down. Um, so that'll be nice. And uh, also, you know, the adjustment to him starting school. So, you know, I already asked my workplace to be incredibly... Um, forgiving and, and accommodating in terms of my timelines for my illness. Um, but now that I have to focus on, okay, also besides my illness, I've got a kid who's studying school, so he'll only be going for five hours a day for the first month. Um, so I need to be there, you know, like I'll drop him off at 8.30, but I've got to pick him up at 2.30 and, you know, all of this kind of stuff that comes with that, which, you know, don't get me started on women and workforces and all the things we have to do for our kids oh god um, there are many think pieces if you're listening yeah. just go and google yeah yeah there really are <laughs> um and my again my, you know my partner is great but he has just started a great job that he's really enthusiastic about and when i went back to work one of the things that we did was i said to him well you know if i go back to work you're kind of going to have to stay at the job that you're at because i'm not going to earn a lot of money and you're earning enough money and also you have a family-friendly workplace so you know, even though you want big, great things for your career, you're going to have to wait for a couple of years to take that next jump. Um, and he, despite being offered really great opportunities, did agree to do that. And mm. so that kind of co-parenting that you have to do in these years, now it's kind of my turn to pay that back. You know, he's got mm. a really great jump forward in his career, so I'll hold off on getting another um, kind of job that I really want to do for a while so that we can set Lavery into school and and do all that stuff so I'll be freelancing which I'm excited about and I've got a couple of different projects um I'm working with um the Emerging Writers Festival on um some professional development and um some kind of opportunities for women writers talking about the um difficulties that women face in this kind of creative industry and some of the glass ceilings that exist um and building up some of the confidence and skills for younger women um who you know, um, are often competing with men who have just been, you know, kind of fed a level of confidence we don't always have. Um, so, yeah, and if, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to the Emerging Writers Festival website and look at the um, Women in Literature or Women in Publishing um, manifesto that we came out of a, a great workshop with um, at EWF this year. So I'm happy oh, to yeah, do some I read work that. Like that. That was great. Yeah, yeah, it was really great. We had a bunch of really awesome women around a table talking about their own challenges and the wider challenges in the industry and talking about what we can do. So it's really um, action-focused. So it's not really about, you know, talking about whether there are differences for men and women. It's about talking yeah. about, you know... Yeah. There are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally <laughs> tired of that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just talking about what the differences are and what we can do, you know, to support women better in this industry. So mm. I'm really excited to be working on some of that stuff. Um, cool. 
but yeah in terms of my illness it, it will mean a kind of you know easing of the pressure in some ways in terms of my my day job and um while that job is incredibly creative it kind of takes up that part of my brain that allows me to do these other exciting great creative things that I want to do so I've got a book idea bubbling and yeah, hopefully some good things will happen in the next six to 12 months I'm really excited I would totally read any book you write yes <laughs> literally any sale. subject yeah that's one great. down Excellent. <laughs> um, I'm in I I'm will be hitting now. you up for a review copy no yep. no, no I'll pay yep. I'll pay <laughs> you, know, you can have the review copy it's all good yes all right and it's on record it's yeah. on record <laughs> I have to follow through now. <laughs> you um, have to write it yeah. you have to oh write it oh god now I've got to write a review because <laughs> I promised Girl, I promised her. I promised this woman on a I, podcast. I, I promised she could re- review it. So yeah. now I've got to write it. Damn oh, it. Yeah. You always trick yourselves into these things. I, I've gotten into a habit of um, telling people yeah. I'm going to do... Like, I think I started telling people, I was like, I'm going to do a podcast. And that was probably about eight weeks ago. Yeah. And I was hey, like... Hey, well, you've got a quick turnaround. I've been telling people about a podcast and my darling friend Courtney Hocking and I are going to be doing for about six months and it still hasn't happened. Oh, you guys should do that. Your yeah. tweets are hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that we should put more of our craziness in public. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, eight weeks is a good turnaround. I'm going to do a podcast. You're doing it. I, one of the things that's kind of actually a bit of uh, a problem with my illness is that I am impatient mm. um, when it comes to, uh, I don't know, maybe impatient is more, is too like judgy a word. It's more like I'm, uh, I know that I'm a perfectionist, so I try and combat that by doing things as soon as I think of them so yep. I don't procrastinate. So you can't put yourself off by, yep. Yeah. I, otherwise, well, this needs to be perfect, and that needs to be perfect. Yeah. Otherwise, like every other writer, I've got all those unfinished novels because I'm like, well, I haven't quite. I've perfected the premise yet, so yep. I'm just gonna leave it for a couple more years. It just won't happen. Yeah. So I've gotten into the habit of uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jess McCarthy, who's a really great graphic designer, yep. uh, and uh, marketing professional in Perth. <laughs> Um, Jess, if you're listening, I love you. I miss you. Um, and she, she uh, many, many years ago, um, gave me the advice to just get things done. Yeah. And I've taken that. Uh, and another friend of mine, Kate Wilson, really great performance poet, that's something she said to me a couple of years ago. I wrote it down, stuck up all this advice on my wall. Yeah. And I look at it every day and go, if you just do something today, you've won. Yep. It doesn't matter about the quality. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> And that's definitely one of those things I learned during that period where I was saying it made me reassess my life and the, you know, the way I went about things. And one of those was that perfectionism. And it was, you know, well, if you don't write anything to start with, how are you going to edit it? If you don't, you know, mm-hmm. um, do at least part of it. And also, you know, your standards are not everybody else's. It's okay if it's not, you know, what your, your dream of it is. And I think it took me a long time to come around to the idea too that you're not innately you know like the first time you do something it's not going to be the best of that thing you do mm. and so the first podcast you make is not going to be your best podcast and you know maybe your first book will be it the may best be. book but I mean... the first draft won't have been the best draft yeah, you know yeah and so I think I felt this real pressure of like well unless I know I'm going to excel at this I should just not do that and my illness just made me like you say well if you've done anything you've won um yeah i got uh, out of bed today yeah it is such a victory some days it really is um and it's also why i talk more openly about my illness now than i did you know probably two three years ago um because i've realized that talking about it makes it um i guess more approachable for other people who have that illness Mm -hmm. um but also um for other people who are looking on it's like 
you know, there are reasons I'm like this. Like, yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I, I sometimes turn up to work and I can't remember the name of a chair and it's like, can you, can you give me that? You know, and I'm just like looking at the chair, but the word chair won't come. And, you know, my coworkers sometimes just have to be really patient with me and it must be damn frustrating. Um, and they're really good. But, you know, sometimes I appear like an idiot in public. <laughs> so it's kind of nice. Like, here's why I'm an idiot. Uh, actually, I've always been a bit of an idiot. But this is like another reason I'm like, even more of an idiot. This is a specific kind of idiot yeah. that I'm being right now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the amount of times I have felt like yelling at people like, I'm, I'm normally smarter than this. Yes. Oh my I God. promise I'm intelligent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm planning a project and I'm like, oh, we're going to need a thing. And someone's like, I can't believe you're in charge of this project. <laughs> You can't even figure out. Did you just you know, wander in here by yeah, me? Like, totally. Oh, that's oh, awful. And, you know, quite often, like, I love um, chairing panels. It's, like, one of my favourite things to do because I'm, like, naturally curious. I like asking people questions and finding out all about, you know, whatever the great topic is. Um, but that is, like, really anxiety-producing for me because if I'm having a bad day, I might still be able to pull it off because I'll have done all of the research, but I won't be as there and as present and that's you know that's roll of the dice some days are good some mm. days are bad and so I did two events in quite close proximity um just recently um I can't remember what the first one was I've managed to blank it out of my mind that's how badly it went um this is an example right now yeah of, yeah yeah that's yeah. <laughs> my brain not filling in the blanks um and that first event just didn't go very well it was fine oh it was hosting that panel hosting the panel at EWF about women in publishing and literature and mm, cool. it just didn't go that well I wasn't quite on my game and it was fine I prepared I knew what I needed to do but just kind of didn't feel right and I knew I could have done it better and then a few weeks later I had to interview John Marston um at the Wheeler Centre which was oh I know it was that so was great. that was my him. gasp yeah <laughs> it was a good gasp um who you know I adore and um have been lucky enough to work with um because he runs our John Marston Prize for youth literature so um, and he's wonderful and I knew him so I had a level of comfort there um, but I was just paranoid the whole time I was like oh god I'm gonna have a bad day I'm gonna have a bad day and I'm gonna be sitting up there on stage and I'm not gonna do a great job I had a good day and it was a great event mm. um, but those are the kinds of things that you're constantly having to monitor and like me sitting on stage thinking don't forget the name of his book. Don't forget the name of his book. You know, because I've done that before. I've been... Yesterday like, when the war ended. Damn it. Exactly. <laughs> I will have done that. I guarantee you I will be on a panel. and Or, you know, you're in a panel and you've got four speakers and you have researched them to the death. But you will call them the wrong name on stage because, oh, yeah. you know, you've just got that bit of fuzz happening that day. Um and so, you know, it does. It makes you look like you either didn't prepare or you didn't care or you, you know, oh, didn't do yeah. those things. And so those are the things I get really self-conscious about. Yeah. Um, and yeah, which is like you're talking about where your anxiety comes from too, is your health, not necessarily the performing element, but the, oh God, is my health going to let me down here? I can't help wondering um, what life would be like if I didn't have that anxiety yeah if I if like imagine how much I could get done oh. if I wasn't thinking but what if I have a bad day yep um or if I wasn't having bad days <laughs> yeah the bad days themselves also not helpful also yeah. not great I I forget um it's I, I I call it losing days because when I'm having bad days um uh, it's is I'm almost so I can be it's some when it's really bad I'm almost completely checked out yeah so I will forget um, so three days will go by and it'll be like one for me yeah and I won't be able to remember what day it is or so like really in really bad times it gets yeah. it can get like I can start yeah losing some pretty vital information yep um where am I yeah 
Which state am I in at this point in time? Uh Uh-huh. What time is it? Um, Where is anything? How do I do things? Yeah. And um, which is really scary. Yeah. Uh, So I tend to like forget um, about those times maybe because it's like they're so hazy. Yeah. I think um, all of that, like it's the same when I go to a new specialist and um, he's like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I'm like, I, you're asking me how many times I've done X in however much time. I don't know. Like I can't remember last week. And now I think people thought I was just being like, what? I don't know. But now, you know, someone will say to me, oh, how was that thing yesterday? And I'll go, what, what thing? And I really have to struggle to remember what happened yesterday. And once you give me a prompt, I can fill in that blank. But until you say you were going to work or you were taking, you know, someone to the doctor, I can't remember what that was like. It's just not there. Yeah. Uh, And it's a really scary feeling, feeling like parts of your life are missing. Um, Yeah. And I still do that now. Like I can remember. So I I was in quite a haze when I got married about that time in my life. And so I can remember. Do you. um, were you, was this, uh, do you need help getting out of this marriage? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like, I don't remember married, agreeing to marry Tim. <laughs> Blink what twice you? if you need help. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Tim's yeah. great. <laughs> yes. and, and I do remember getting married. Yes. But there are lots Good. of things around it that I don't. Like there are things like, um, like a few months ago I realized, oh, I remember that time I had laparoscopic surgery to like check out something about my health and then I was like where was I living yeah I don't remember going to the hospital I don't who picked me up like what was that time in my life I don't remember and even yesterday I was actually posting some pictures from an old um Tina event and um I I misidentified yeah Yeah. I misidentified that year by two years I said oh I think this was 2005 and people were like no that was 2003 and I was like Oh, yeah, okay. I can't, even though I didn't have chronic fatigue at the time, like the timeline of my life is just blurry from a certain point forward. Yeah, Um, that's true of me too. The last five years is super blurry. Yeah. Just the other day I was saying to someone, I was talking about a birthday party I had, and I was like, that was five years ago. That seems unbelievable. That's because I was wrong. (laughs) It was three years ago. It's like, that seems like a long time ago. And I had completely blurred two, like yeah. two years together. Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know. The... And, and I just want to, sorry, just yeah, jump in. Go... People who are listening who maybe don't live with this kind of thing might mm. be thinking, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. I forget where my keys are. Yeah. And that's the problem with, like, chronic fatigue syndrome yeah. is we're experiencing things that probably everyone has experienced in, to some degree, but we're experiencing them to a severe degree. Yeah, absolutely. And and to the point where it is not possible to really function. And so, mm. like, I haven't forgotten how to drive a car, but I can't drive a car in the, mo- in the morning because the coordination of my feet and my hands and the road is just too much stimulus. And so after I've woken up, I could generally drive home from work. And if I really need to, I can prepare to drive to work or whatever. But it's too much. Like, I can't do that. And some people will be like, yeah, I get up in the morning and I'm tired and I'm not functioning that well. But it's not, it's it's like the, you know, the the never-ending element of it. And so, you know, like quite often people trying to be you know, sympathetic will say something like, oh, I, you know, I was really sick. I had to go to bed, you know, I couldn't get out of bed for a week. And 
you know, I understand what you're trying to do and that, you know, you understand what it's like to be bedbound and how frustrating that is. But the elements that come out of a life of that are very different. And it's the same as saying to someone in a wheelchair, oh, I broke my leg and I couldn't move around for a while. That's, it's not. <laughs> or, or I sat down on a leather couch once and then I right? stuck to it. It took me a couple yeah. seconds to get <laughs> right? up. So exactly. I'm with you. I know. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, I understand that you want to relate to that experience and that you want to express that you know that there is difficulty attached, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's like the cumulative effect of living this way for a long time is actually what ends up being difficult. And it was really interesting for me to learn about the social mode of, of disability and thinking about disability in those terms, um, which for people who don't know about it, I'll like this is probably the worst shortening version of that, but essentially it talks about the fact that your disability isn't really an issue. It's the world's inability to cope with your disability that mm. is the problem. So for people in wheelchairs, the problem isn't being in a wheelchair. It is not having wheelchair accessible places to go or toilets or facilities or whatever. Um, and that was really, really good for me to learn about and to... Um, it actually helped me to reframe some of my own experience as well and now I'm a bit, quite a bit better at identifying what is my health, what is my health causing a problem and what is society not being able to tolerate, you know, moving for anybody else, m making adjustments. And so I still find all the time, like I have very well-meaning well friends, very supportive friends, but I have to remind them almost constantly, like, that's too much for me, I can't do that or... You know, um, they'll say, "Oh, well, just meet me over here," and I'll say, "Is there somewhere to sit? You know, like, can I yeah. can I actually sit down and wait for you?" And if there's not, then I can't wait there, and that's mm. okay. But that's what I need to do. And so, you know, the problem there isn't that I can't stand for four hours; it's that, you know, you you can't think about me in the same way that you know maybe I have to think about me, and that yeah. is challenging for people, I think. Yeah, and we can't all push ourselves to that extent and then be fine the next day yeah because um, yeah. standing for four hours is a little bit of a, it's like a bit of a stretch for anyone yeah um but there's a difference in recovery time yeah and um the impact um yeah i went to a poetry slam recently that i signed up for and i didn't know that like by signing up by lining up for an hour to sign up i would be losing my chance to get a chair um, and then there were only standing places left. Yeah. And then I was like the third last person to be drawn out of oh the hat. God. So I was stand overall. I think I was. I counted. I was standing for about uh, four hours. Yeah. And I uh, I was not well for about a week yeah. after that. Yeah. Um, also, it probably didn't help that I got up on stage and entered an air guitar competition <laughs> because I was like, damn it. <laughs> well, this is gonna hurt anyway. <laughs> I may as well just do it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting, and I think that the interesting part of that too is the fact that I would have done the exact same thing. I would have just gone through that, and it's only really recently that I've started saying to people, I can't, you know, like if you had said to someone at that organisation, oh, um, so I've lined up for an hour and now I don't have a chair, but actually I'm not physically capable of standing for this long, mm. you know, someone would probably have been very great about helping you, but oh, you but having you... to out yourself yes. constantly is like, I can't do this, I need help with this, I am not capable of this, is really tiring. And people really tiring. don't believe me. No, I mean, of course not. Uh, I know I'm listeners can't see me but i yep. look i look normal i look normal yeah. you guys yeah she's pretty normal. i mean not entirely normal but i've got know. this green scaly head <laughs> yeah. but other than that <laughs> totally normal other than that 
yeah, but, yeah. No, I, I, I've, I. This is. I'm just going off what I've been told. Because yeah. when I'm feeling really sick, I'll think it looks really obvious, and yeah. then people will say, "You don't look. You don't look sick at all." Yeah. I'm like, really, because I feel like I'm dying. Yeah. Um. So evidently, it's it's an invisible illness. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's really frustrating to not only out yourself, but to constantly have to yep. justify. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It's exhausting. And just, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. I know, it's true. Let's get it smoothies. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> That'll be better. But it, it is kind of a um, that constant outing, I think, is something that's um, like just when you think you've finished doing it, all of a sudden you have to go through a new round of it. Mm. That's exhausting. And it does mean, and you know, I, this is a constant thing I've had since I was diagnosed is don't make your illness your identity. Yep. And I really, it's not me doing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have, yeah. If I have to explain it, um, and I already have to explain my accent about three yeah. times a day. Because <laughs> Lord knows you couldn't hear something and just say, oh, that's how that person speaks. Like, you know, you've got to know exactly why, what's happening. Why is she trying to sound like she's American? Uh, <laughs> it's all an affectation. And one day I'll just, um, I'll really reveal it's been a long con. Yeah, like an like Andy Josh Kaufman Thomas. style. Josh Thomas. <laughs> We're all waiting for him to come out with his real voice too. That's what it was actually. I I, I heard Josh Thomas one day and I went, I went. That's for me. <laughs> but I know I'll have a different take. Someone who's an American. This is actually me trying to do Josh Thomas's voice and failing. Oh, oh that's so sad for you, Caitlin. <laughs> oh. Because why would you want to fail at that? Oh, of all the things to fail at, that's not the most interesting accent. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would rather try and have as good a sitcom as yeah, him. Yeah, that would be good. Um, yeah. But instead I went for his accent. I would totally watch that. Yeah. Oh, have you seen Please Like Me? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. I still have to watch it. Um, and I know that I will like it. I know from everything that's been said about it, it's going to be really great. And um, I should have already watched it because my adoration of comedy knows no bounds. But um, <laughs> apparently it does. Apparently it knows that bound. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> The bound is it not being directly in front of you, yeah. which is, yeah, like if it's not right in front of me right now, to, ready yeah, to press play, it's too yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I haven't gotten into Twin Peaks, because I don't oh. know how to access it. So, Oh my God. Okay. I'm and gonna I have to solve this for you. Please. I, I'm not one of these um, torrent downloader yeah. type peoples. I don't know how to do that. Absolutely. I like to pretend that it's the moral high ground. Yeah. But really? I just don't know how. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. I completely understand that. All of my downloading has knowledge has been acquired over a long time out of desperation. Yes. So, that's probably a good sign for you. Mine was desperation over TV. Come on. Where's the latest episode of Midsummer Murders? I need it now. I can't wait six weeks for the ABC to screen it. Why does anyone live in that town? I don't, nobody is living there anymore. They're all dead. <laughs> They're all dead. They're so dead. It's, they just turned it into a mausoleum, yeah, the whole town. Pretty much. Pretty much. It's, it is my favourite of all of my um, British crime shows um it is universally uh, just so terrible and so great <laughs> and i unashamedly love it like when i went to the uk um i toured all kinds of sites that they had filmed midsummer murders on i yeah. like i love that show um there's no such thing as you know shame watching in my book i just love it um, oh that's great no shame yeah. watching no no not at all i i um, thoroughly believe that you know you can enjoy a trashy book or a trashy TV show or a great book or, you know, a, a masterpiece um, and you get something different out of all of them. So that's kind of, that's, you know, my self-justification. <laughs> what, I do. Yeah. what about hate watching? Do you hate watch anything? Um, do I hate watch anything? Um, yeah, 
I think I hate watched the last couple of seasons of Breaking Bad. Oh. I really resented Breaking Bad by the end. I was a bit like, mm, no, I'm just, you know, I just don't. I think I don't react well to anti-heroes. Um, I think, I feel like there's kind of too many of them at the moment. And correct me if I'm wrong. They seem to be mostly white males. Oh yes, absolutely. There are it's... so many white male anti-heroes. There are very few, there are a couple of good, um, female anti-heroes but not many because if you're an unlikable woman then who would watch you um but yeah hey, lena dunham yeah oh i love her breaking oh, the mold i know i love her i actually um may have illegally downloaded her book uh, to read on my e-reader because we're i can't gonna, wait we're gonna to go to the bookstore bleep to all this out I know. Good. <laughs> no i've okay. i'm waiting for it to become available on amazon I, yeah sorry i mean my local independent bookseller <laughs> Oh, no. you're never getting Whoops. a gig in this town again <laughs> i'll never work in publishing no. <laughs> um yeah. i actually am like i i depending on like whether i can get to the physically get to the bookstore first or yeah. i'll probably buy both but yeah yeah i'll definitely my... go and buy the physical book but i was like i want to read it now you exactly know, so yeah and illegally download it which is rude um, but I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. I think I'm so excited. And and Slow coming it. out like around the same time is Amy Polo's book. I know. What? We're just spoiled for choice. Oh man, I'm gonna line it up. I've already got um Miranda Hart, the yep. the UK comedian. I've got yep. her book. Uh, I've got Mindy Kaling's. Is everyone hanging out without me? Yeah. Uh, Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, of course. Such a great book. Like everyone should own that. Yep. If you if you're listening to this, just press pause. Yep. Go and find Bossy Pants. Yep. Pay for it. Uh, <laughs> It's, Actually, it's, it's Tina. Well Tina Fey is doing fine. You know what? Download it. <laughs> the sisterhood is dead when it comes to our books, our bookshelves. Oh, she's fine. She's fine. That's good. That's true. It is a, an amazing book. I love that book, oh. and I, I refer back to it all the time, which I don't do with comedy memoirs from anyone else. But hers is like, you know, there's such a, a huge well of information there. I think for women, um, and I love her that she's, you know, she has not become a man in a man's world you know to, mm. to kind of do what she does she's she and amy um polar just blow my mind they're so so great anyway i'll start I, fangirling oh no no i love them i was watching a uh one of these like <laughs> probably recorded from daytime tv documentaries yeah on youtube yeah um that was like amy polar and tina fey <laughs> best friends in comedy or something like that you know yeah. like they you know they always call them like the first ladies of comedy and yeah. i'm like okay just just sidebar quickly that annoys me yeah um because for do they realize that first lady is like the person married to the person yeah. in power that is not the good person that That's is not, not who the you, central person you don't aim yeah. to be first lady no. you're just there by accident nope. michelle yeah. obama's just you know being kick-ass because that's where she is right now yeah but anyway, okay, anyway, so I just wanted to get that off my chest. Yeah. That annoys Good. me. But um, they were saying, they, were, they were interviewed a lot of people to talk about, like, you know, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and this, uh, you know, guy who's obviously, like, some sort of big wig in, in American comedy was, yeah. like, um, was talking about how hard it was for women uh, to make it and how Tina was the first head writer at Saturday Night Live and this yep. kind of first, sorry, female head writer. Yep. And he said, oh, talent cuts through. And I oh god, if only that were true. But but the thing is though that like, um, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are, and I would say maybe Tina Fey. I love Amy Poehler, but she strikes me as someone who's very, like, 
has just worked for a long time. Yeah. Tina Fey has some kind of weird genius for comedy. Oh, she's magic. Like, she, there is something she's doing that is, like, um, is chemical. Yeah. Um, but she also works hard and has just stuck with it. So, yeah. I mean, all of those things have come together. Yeah. But, but the thing is that, like, um, how many, like, there are, that <laughs> not every male comedy space is occupied by geniuses. Like, they're just Will there. Fair. Look, we're going to disagree right now. <laughs> you think he's a genius? Here I think he, Will's a genius he's a guy. physical comedy genius. Well, he's pretty great in physical comedy, that's true. But I would I say he's not a genius at everything he does. No, and I was actually thinking more about how he's had a film career handed to him oh, that yeah. Tina Fey or Amy Poehler would not have, just couldn't have that same trajectory. They had to prove themselves in ways that Will Ferrell never did because people will watch a movie about a grown-up man baby you know like that's great and, and that's what he does and now. i have and i will again yes and so will i like i'm not saying i don't watch it but i'm thinking about that and thinking you know and i like i've seen oh god i'm gonna forget the name of it see if it's in action again but that movie with tina fey um where she adopts a kid no someone's oh, having a kid baby mama yeah baby mama well, she wants yeah. she wants yeah. a, she finds surrogate. a surrogate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um, amy paul is basically a, a woman baby in yeah. that movie, which is totally wonderful. Yeah. And then that was a great movie. And you can't tell me that doesn't rival some of the things that, you know, ha- have kind of come out of the men's Saturday Night Live movie camp. You know, like there are some stinkers in that. MacGruber, anyone? Oh. <laughs> oh, so awkward. And they'll um, just keep getting funding. Yeah, totally. And Adam Sandler, no matter how bad he gets, he'll still oh. get to make movies, you know? Oh. Just never ends. Um, He's, wow. Is it? Is he just performance art now? Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Joaquin Phoenix is going to be him <laughs> next. That's going to be his next but at uh, least performance art. <laughs> He's just going to be Adam Sandler. Oh my God, that would be amazing. I'd love that. Imagine playing him in a biopic. That would be, that would be so good. Imagine if Joaquin Phoenix started tuning up to late night shows as Adam Sandler. <laughs> oh my God. We've just created the best fan fiction ever. We're going to have to write this series, Caitlin. Oh man, it's I'm going to be so great. I'm, I'm good. I'm, for the rest of the festival, I'm just writing Adam yeah. Sandler. Yeah. Sorry, I can't go to any more panels. I nope. can't do anything. I've got um, this really important project. I'm writing the Ink Pony. Is that, <laughs> ink is that a saying? Yeah. <laughs> should be i'm riding the ink pony it sounds great I mean, yeah inky black pony yeah. of my dreams yeah but uh what were we talking about um oh just talking about the work genius. that women have to do yeah genius yeah. and talent cutting through and so that was my problem is like uh um obviously like sorry and like the thing is that he said talent cuts through as if that was like a proof that equality exists but cuts through what yeah. what do you mean oh cuts through sexism that that's what and, they have to cut you know, through the heteronormative you know All like of, yeah basic standard setting is male what i generally refer to as bullshit yeah um, i think yeah. I, that's a great term i'm gonna take that term. <laughs> yeah it's very true and i think um it's something you know oh god i'm sure you face it and i see it for a lot of women and the amount of determination and the amount of um internal monologue you have to get through to get to a position that a lot of men just because of the way they've been socialized not because they're evil it's just they are socialized very differently and so as a woman you reach a certain point and you're suddenly like oh i'm gonna have to work that extra however many percent just to get to whatever you're at right now and you know the unconscious biases that scientific studies show up are amazing and i love it when they do those studies because it shows that women do it men do it i do it like Mm -hmm. i was looking at photos of the first time that i um, programmed 
is the event that I used to do at Tina. And I was lucky if I had a woman on every panel. Wow. And I remember I had that aim for myself. Like, oh, well, you should have a woman on every panel. But then I was looking at the photos and I was like, oh, there are some where there are no women there. And um, I probably would have described myself as a feminist at that point. But I certainly wasn't obviously thinking about all of those, you know, issues and the breadth of that. And so, you know, I'm really glad and happy that I don't think that way at all anymore. But, yeah, it's very different. And now I'm embarrassed about that. But at the time, I didn't really know... I, well, you know, I like I say, I would have described myself as a feminist, but I didn't think about it in the ways that I obviously should have. Um, and now I would never do that. Um, and if I arrived at a festival and there were mostly men and there was one token woman on every panel, if that, I would be outraged and I would be really pissed off about it. Um, but I think, you know, you learn and you adapt and you, you know, get better at this stuff. Um, and certainly I have, but yeah, the idea that there are no challenges for women in these areas as writers or, you know, in any creative field is insane. <laughs> and we've only recently in history been accepted into these spaces. Yeah. And accepted even is a strong word. Yes. Because I've tried stand-up comedy. Oh. <laughs> Try having oh, boobs okay, and like, doing stand-up yeah. comedy. Yeah. Like, and, like, yeah. yeah, it's just... Uh, yeah, I've worked in comedy for a long time and it is one of... <laughs> so my friend Courtney and I are always joking she um, was a stand-up comic and that's sort of how we met um, I produced and um, reviewed and wrote about comedy and she performed comedy and um, you know she would tell you about being lucky that she did it from such a young age that she didn't really notice a lot of the sexism or, mm. or ex sort of accepted it um, instead of fighting against it whereas eventually part of the reason she stopped doing it was because she just didn't have the energy to negotiate that all the time all of the sexism and the you know the frustration and so now she writes comedy she writes for tv for comedy but she also writes her own um, op-eds and her own work and you know we're always joking about the sexism in writing and then both of us just sort of think back to the way that sexism was in comedy and that is like a whole nother level um it is it is one of the most unfriendly spaces for women in any creative industry it's really shocking and really sad um and that's why i'm really excited to be hosting the funny ladies panel here at, at um young writers festival this weekend because there are amazing women doing comedy just yeah. so good and so talented um and yeah i'm so glad that that tide has started to turn but it's still the dominant case that mm. comedy for women is an awful experience yeah. um, or a difficult experience because we still get that descriptor put in front of everything yeah. we do female yeah like oh you're yep. a female poet you're a female comedian yep. oh, i'm just a poet i'm yep. just just a comedy writer yep. yeah yeah like, the <laughs> excellent karen pickering um runs some female comedy nights um and just does general stuff and um i'm not sure whether she was saying she does this or she was telling me a story about somebody else who does this um who likes to introduce comics as male comics now yeah and um, she's like and this is one of my favorite male comics so and so <laughs> you know because, again, the same thing, you know, you get told, oh, this is one of my favourite female comics. Not comics. You couldn't be someone's favourite comic, but you could maybe be their favourite female comic. Like, yeah, go mm. have that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that still. Trigger warning, we talk about rape culture for the next bit, so if that's something you don't want to think about today, skip to the end of the podcast. By the way, you're listening to Oh Little Sister, Brisbane artist. Isn't she great? Is there another? Is there?
this is something that when you know this interests me people often say like when I've, I've talked publicly about um, comedy being an unfriendly space for women a lot of people will come back to me and say it's an unfriendly space for everyone that mm-hmm. everyone like is like everything is up for grabs when it comes to like stand-up comedy and everyone is taking the piss out of um but it's different for women yeah absolutely it is and so you've think... actually you've worked in comedy for a yeah. while so yeah yeah and and it is absolutely different for women and um you know you that I think that it's true that, and one of the things that I think is really interesting to talk about is the fact that that comedy, um, Australian comedy, there's this attitude like, well, everything's up for grabs. Um, yeah. You know, nothing is sacred. And um, I always love the way Courtney says, yeah, you should be punching up though. You know, like, yes. and so for white men, maybe that means there are some places you shouldn't go, you know, mm. like you have a lot of privilege and maybe you shouldn't be using that privilege to punch down. Mm. Um, and I don't think that, you know, everyone always falls back on that example of is there a funny rape joke um and i think that that's not a very interesting question because you know is your joke rape is your joke a rapist or is your joke a rape victim and too many people can't even see the difference between that and if you can't see the difference then you shouldn't be doing it um yes and that's the thing i always struggle with this like um if you're not if some, if some, like, and don't tell me that people who make rape jokes don't think they're going to be controversial. Yeah, it's a lot. Like oh, most of them, are. that's why they're doing yeah, it. Yeah, totally. So I mean, my thing is like, and then they act like, well, I can't believe people got offended. But, um, it's like it's like appropriating black culture and music in white musicians' music videos. Mm. They won't suffer if they don't appropriate this right now. Yeah, like they won't. Like you won't. Hopefully. If if you're funny, your comedy career will survive you not making a rape joke. Yeah. Like, think more about, like, uh, there's so much of an attitude of, um, why can't I? What about why should you? Yeah, that you is know? such a good point. Yeah, it's it's an important question you should be asking. And I think it's relevant to writers, too. I think it's really relevant to writers. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of talk about truth and a lot of about whose story is whose and, you know, all of that stuff. And But I do think there is also... Um, a lot of people who probably should be questioning themselves about not whether they can, but whether, you know, they should. And yeah. um, who else is implicated in you doing that? I think yeah. men in comedy too, you know, because they are such a vast majority, find it very difficult. And they, they think of it as having quite a long tradition and um, quite a, you know, oh, God. So the the, the comics lounge were really good to me. Um, and I've worked with them a lot over the years and they've helped me do a lot of charity work. But that is a space, you know, for example, it's like in Melbourne, you know, this long, very long history, um, but it is very much a bloke's area. And it's not because they don't have women, but it's run by some really blokey guys. And like I say, they've been very supportive of me in a lot of different ways. But they are also, they run a space where, you know, there's a lot of offensive material that ends up on that stage. And if you're in any way not kind of that dominant, you know, male character, you're not really at home there. That's not your space. Um, and I remember one time a woman saying she wouldn't perform there anymore because they also do sex shows on nights. They're not doing comedy shows. They use the venue to do like these like sex show things. And like, it's completely it's... separate. It's like a venue hire. Sure. But the owners could not understand why women would be bothered that the only other women that appeared on that stage were 
strippers doing some pretty outrageous stuff. And they were like, well, what difference does that make? You're not even here. You don't have to watch it. You don't, whatever. And they were like, because it shows me how you feel about women. And it shows me that, that you would never put an all-female comedy night up here voluntarily. You wouldn't book all women all one night. But the only time you have a even vast majority of women is when you book you know, a stripper's night and yeah. they just couldn't understand. And it's not because they were trying to be assholes. They just didn't get it at all. Um, and I think that that is, you know, probably an extreme example, but I think there's a lot of that attitude and that is the default setting there that, you know, well, who cares? You know, like mm. you've got to be tough enough to make it in our world. Why and is it your world? Like, why do you get that? Right. And isn't, isn't who cares the dumbest comeback to oh someone God. talking about the right? thing they care about? Yeah. You're I like, care. I care. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Totally. But, yeah. yeah. Totally. And so I remember being at the very first Jeez Louise, which um, Linda Hagar, who's, you know, just an absolute gem, um, she wanted to put together because she saw that there were a lot of women who were like turning up for maybe a year in comedy and then would just disappear because it was just all too hard. And so this was sort of mid thousands, maybe 2004, maybe somewhere around there. And she um, was like, well, we're going to run this like two day conference and we're going to have any woman who wants to be there who's a comic and they're just going to come along and we're going to teach them mic technique and we're going to teach them this and we're going to teach them that and then we're going to set them free to do their own material and some of the women from that year are still performing and they're still kicking ass and they're still you know they've had a long career and there's been longevity for them and I'm not saying they didn't um, have a lot of problems but that mentorship I don't think had been there weren't enough people there and there wasn't a structure for it before that. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of room that's been made in comedy just by women starting to fight back against that boys club by creating a bit of a girls club and not that it excludes men, but that it says here's a space where women don't have to feel like it's not for them or they yeah. are intruding on it. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah. Like, and that's such a, um, a common experience with women in, in, any part of life to feel like sorry I took up space yeah sorry that I'm here yeah um and it's so great it's just and I, I think a lot of guys and not all guys because um I've noticed that men from who come from minorities uh yeah. or, or like you know like you know, queer men yep. um trans people so much more understanding because they they know what it's like to be constantly pushed out of this big main public yeah. space that, yeah. that most of Australia is yeah um and so they're like yeah okay it, it exists and it's awful and I think a lot of guys who haven't ever experienced that don't even understand that it's out there no that that that's happening to a lot of people no not at all and I think it's something that I feel acutely where my you know the crossover between my disability and my um my femaleness um is like, I do, I get way more apologetic than men I know who have similar issues, mm. who are like, well, this is what I need to function and you'll all make that work for me. Whereas I spend all of my time apologising and, uh, you know, like being embarrassed to ask for a chair to sit down or, mm-hmm. you know, it's n- not saying to someone, I can't walk that far, can we just go to the cafe closer because I'm embarrassed that I have to, you know, do that. Yeah. Um, and I miss out on professional development opportunities because I, you know, can't get out of bed and... But men just don't experience that in the same way. Even in a disability, even when they have a thing, there's something, you know, that allows them to occupy more space and ask for more things and feel okay about that in a way that I don't think women do. Yeah. And it's really great to see um, 
the focus on men's mental health that's happening. Yeah. Because uh, and and I don't understand. There's a lot. Of, okay, there's a lot of people on Twitter, right? Who like to frame, <laughs> who like to frame conversations around gender as like if some kind of war between yeah. men oh, and yeah. women, and it's like oh, okay. Uh, it's like as if like talking about men's mental health is going to make the feminists so angry because yeah. now we're not talking about women for a minute. Yeah. And it's like if men are getting good mental health, they'll probably be abusing less people. Yeah, they'll probably they'll be, yeah, better more, people. More yeah, conscious, happier. Happier yeah. people are generally nicer to other people. Yeah, that so, is a surprising statistic I have seen somewhere. That's yeah. the name of my children's book that I'm writing. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Um, yeah, I, I think that's very true. And I also, um, you know, somewhat controversially, and I know there are a lot of women who feel differently, but I do think that um, men are important in feminist spaces um, and... I don't think they should speak for us. I don't think they mm. should be the centre of that movement. But I do think that men being allies is hugely important. And I do think there is a lot of room for men to do a kind of activism that women can't do. And I don't think that that is necessarily right. Like, I don't think it's great that a lot of men just won't listen to women talking about their experiences. But I do think that if a man can talk about why feminism is important for women or for men, but mostly for women, and why it matters, then I think that's really important. And it's the same as talking about domestic violence from the point of view of, you know, a lot of the more successful later campaigns around domestic violence have been men, and, you know, one of them was sportsmen, saying, it's not okay, you shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to think that we could have had the most famous woman in the world saying, it's not okay, you can't do this, and it wouldn't have had the same sort of impact as it does for some men to hear that from their football hero. Yeah. Um... And so I think there's a lot Well, there, there. aren't that many. There aren't any famous female footballers. No, so. there aren't. There are some great female footballers. There's none that are famous. None that um, I could name. <laughs> no, no. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, same thing. But we could put the best female athlete up there. Any female mm, athlete. Mm-hmm. You can put a swimmer or a boxer or whoever. And they just wouldn't have the same impact. And this is, this is a bit of a tangent, but there is this funny thing that I've identified where... Um, and we saw it a bit in the Emma Watson speech at, yeah. at, at the UN uh, for he, launching the He For She campaign, um, is try, trying to frame feminism as if, like, yeah, it's going to benefit all women, but it's going to benefit men too, and as if that's the way to bring men into the conversation, yeah. assuming that they won't be interested unless there's like a, a, they've got a vested interest yeah. for themselves. And I can't imagine... Um, I can't imagine saying to women like throughout history, like we're going to end this war, so no more men w- will die, and no more women will die either. So don't, so, yeah. so you should care. Yeah. Like women would be like, well, of course I don't want the men I love to to die, to yeah. die violently. Yeah. Um, of course I care about this. I just don't think it would even be no a question. No, not um, at all. But but women uh, face all kinds of horrible, violent, and otherwise struggles. And yeah. it's like, it has to be framed as if, yeah, but, but men, you'll feel better about yourselves. Yeah. You'll get to wear yeah. different clothes. Yeah. And that's, that's valid. I, I really have never been comfortable with the gender structure, gendered yeah, stri- restrictions. Gender. Yeah. I've, I, ever since a kid, I was like, how come I get to wear these really comfy, beautiful dresses? And yeah. you know, my brother doesn't because do you know how comfortable this is? This is so um, great right now. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a lovely summer frock is yeah. great. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I tweeted about this the other night and a lot of men, only men, um, actually tweeted back to me. I said, I just, I, I can't imagine how annoying it would be uh, to have people, to have the media and the culture constantly assume that you're an asshole because of yeah. your gender. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of my male followers tweeted back, yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, it's annoying. Yeah, of course it is. But I think that, and this is, you know, where that kind of, um, <laughs> the, the sarcastic hashtag not all men um, <laughs> part comes in where it's like, I think that a lot of men have a need to jump into a space and say, but I'm not. And it's like, that's mm. fine. That's good. But you have to understand that you are part of a dominant majority. And the fact is that, that you might not, but you are a minority yeah. um, within that category. And so when people are talking about, you know, straight white men who are, you know, uh, sexist or misogynist or violent towards women or, you know, buy into rape culture that might not be you but it's not important for you to speak up at that point yeah um the ways that you can be supportive are not by saying that's not me and getting offended you can say that's not me and be really fucking proud Mm. and sit back and let that conversation happen and be an ally in your own community if that's not you that's great then when you see that happen in your community of other dominant you know kind of straight white men then you know be that be that guy who doesn't do that and who doesn't put up with it that's empowering for everybody. Um, and it's not taking anything away from feminism. It's supporting it. And it's also not making it about you. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not about you, mate. Like, if, yeah. if you can recognise that that's not you, it's not about you, great, done. Awesome. I do think there are a lot of men who think it's not about them and then sometimes it is a bit about them too. <laughs> I think um, that happens. And I love fall into that category. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's... Um, that's a whole other issue. But, yeah, I think it would be really difficult, I think. And I saw a really interesting production um, by Sweatshop, the Sydney Collective, um, at EWF this year. And it was um, – I'm going to forget the name of the piece, but it was them talking about what it's like to be a young man, particularly a young Muslim man, in the west of Sydney after the um, incident where there was a gang rape, um, where there were Muslim men involved um, and they gang raped a girl. And so they were talking about – what it's like to be a Muslim and feel all those eyes on you in that community. Um, And I can't imagine that it was very good. um, And I certainly don't imagine it feels great to be a Muslim man anywhere in Australia right now, which is a whole other horror. But and that's not because of Islam. That's because yes, absolutely because of non-Islam perceptions. Yes, yes. Um, because of you know a a small. Oh, I hope it's small. um, You know, community people who are misidentifying and and certainly twisting you know the the reality around what being muslim in australia is about um or muslim anywhere really um but i thought that piece was really interesting because i'm interested in what it feels like to be part of a community where you know you get that experience but um and i don't think it would have been good to be identified by your religion or by the way you look or you know by your name by anything to be associated with that would not be enjoyable. I can totally see that. And so that piece was really great, but that piece also totally lacked women. Mm. Um, And it made me wonder what it's like to be a woman in Western Sydney after a girl has been pack raped. You know, what does that feel like? Um, And I feel like that's the kind of stuff that's happening at the moment. There are a lot of men who are... I went and saw Brendan Cowell's um, The Sublime, Mm. which is a piece about um, football and rape culture. And um, a lot of people have been really vocal about how terrible it is on a lot of levels. And I left and I wasn't as angry as I thought I would be, which was nice. Um, But I also felt like, again, it was this piece that examined what the fallout was like for men. 
Mm. Um, and the girl who is raped in this story is not even on stage. Um, there's another woman who says it's been her so that she can talk publicly about what happened. Um, but even that framing, I was just like, oh, man, I am so sick of... Even now, we can talk about what it's like for men to feel bad about themselves because we talk about some men not being great, but, you know... It's still just... Talk, it's still talking about men. Yeah. 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 That yeah. could, that could, like, that could, you could kind of sum up um, Western culture. Yeah. Just talking about men. Yep. <laughs> and I had a professional meeting with someone not that long ago where they were programming a whole bunch of content about men and masculinity, and I was like, why? Why? Like, that's what all the conversations are. Why are you doing this? Why would you want to do this? And they were quite defensive about it, but... You know, and when I tried to say, why wouldn't you talk about gender? So if you want to talk about masculinity, that's great. But where are you talking about what it's like to be a woman and how difficult it is to grow up as a woman in Australia and the different versions of femininity that exist? Um, and they just were kind of like, well, I don't know. Why, don't, why would I do that? You know. And may I say, I'm a woman. I have masculinity. Yeah. It's not just yep. like, it's always, it's always men and masculinity, women and femininity. Yep. I have always had masculinity and femininity absolutely and men all have masculinity and femininity absolutely i just I, and i mean where does this leave trans people yeah where does this leave non-gender binary people yep um there's a lot there's a lot of people being left out of these conversations where we just yeah. keep talking about cis men yeah and, totally yeah um and i think gender is so interesting and having a four-year-old son um shows you how imposed gender is and just how you know and like we let him express however he wants and um you know he wears dresses and he loves sparkling things and flashing things and nail polish but he also loves to have swords and hit the shit out of stuff and you know there's like a whole spectrum of behavior there. he just sounds like a little me <laughs> yeah, i know right i often look at him and think oh i see a lot about myself it really makes sense now <laughs> go look through that but you know, so he's you know, and he is uniquely him, and people are always trying to uh, categorize that or define mm. it, or you know, oh, he's such a boy, or you know, and oh my God, it started when he was like a month old. Oh, he's so strong when he moves. What? <laughs> he's like a month old. He doesn't even have arm control. Like, he's so strong. It's he's so strong the way he flails his legs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> such a strong flailer. Um, and so, you know, gender, I think, is, is an interesting um, topic, but you're right. There are a lot of, like, let's draw up a box. Everybody's going to go in the box. Yeah. It's not interesting to me. I, I, I sometimes wonder maybe if I'm, I'm taking, when they say men and masculinity, if I'm taking that literally, and there it's actually kind of a codification of we're going to talk about violence. We're going to yeah. talk about um, stoicism. Like, yeah, that's it's really a, interesting. But we're going to frame it in a way that sounds positive. Yeah. So that people will come to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and I've been to a couple of um, events, sort of probably over the last couple of years, that have talked about masculinity. And um, one was um, one where there were two adult men and two boys who were probably about 13. Um, and they were talking about what it's like to be a boy and um, masculinity. And um, one of the adult men um, is a cabaret performer um, who identified as a girl or wanted to be a girl when he was quite young was quite upset about the fact that he was a boy. Um, so there were different spectrums of experience there. Um, and both of the young boys just stole everybody's heart because they were so great and they were talking about gender in really um, 
you know, talking about the judgment of gender, I guess, at, that you go through at that age um, in really interesting ways. But even in the way the conversation was framed, it was very much like, here is what male is. How are you different from that? And that made <laughs> me really uncomfortable. I was yeah. like, well, aren't they showing you that that's not what male is? Yeah. There's a lot that we project on. Yeah, it's also confusing because it, you pretty much get assigned, well, you get assigned a gender at birth. Yeah. You'd think that whatever you do from then on, you've already been assigned male yeah. or female, um, which in itself is a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I've, um, and this is um, sort of something I've had to come to as an adult. I've just gone, you know what, whatever I do is what women do. Yeah. It's like what I do yeah. because I'm a woman. Yeah. So I'm trying to turn the label around and be, instead of me having to like prove myself to the label, the label just is yeah. there. Yeah. So it's like, um, so I'm very tall. And uh, I, I quite like comfortable clothes. Yep. Unlike a lot of people. Like, I'm so special. I like my clothes to be comfortable. Wow, that is controversial. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, a lot of women's clothes aren't super comfortable. And I started no. wearing men's jeans when I was, you know, in my teens. And because um, they were longer, too. And, yep. Uh, just fantastic. And then I, I, I would always have to go over to the men's section. Yeah. And it would say, and I've got like uh, hoodies at home and stuff that say, that were just exactly what I wanted, but they were in the men's section. Yeah. And they say men's in big letters on them, like on the inside. <laughs> yeah. And I go, you know what? No, because as soon as I hand over that cash, it's a woman's hoodie. Yeah. It's a woman's pair of yeah. jeans because I'm a woman. Yeah. They're mine. Yeah. Which um, is so great. <laughs> but it, I ha- again, it's like you were saying before about the internal monologue you have to go through to even yeah. get to that point as a woman. And you know what? Uh, I think that, um, you know, I would love to see men overcome that. I see actually, and it's not something I would love to see. I do see it in Brisbane. There's like lots of men who wear dresses. They wear skirts. I see them around with their beautiful, beautiful outfits. Yep. Um, And they're also like bearded and gruff and they can be all the things. Yep. Um, Yep. Which is what I liked about Emma Watson's UN speech. It's like, let's just be whatever we want to be and yeah. um, not be worried about, you know... Those labels. And the boxes. labels. Yeah. Am I living up to the label? Yeah. And I think that's something I see a lot with my son, like, that at the moment he's relatively protected. So he goes to a really hippie kindergarten and <laughs> um, so... But even in the little tiny, you know, left-leaning bubble that we live in, um, you know, there was a while there where he would be wearing dresses around the home, but he wouldn't wear them to kinder. And we had to do some kind of proactive work with his kinder and, and they were really open to it. Uh, but just to point out to them that it obviously wasn't a safe space for him. He knew somehow intuitively that that would not be good there. Mm. And we worked on it and now he wears his dresses there and he's really happy. And it's not because we suddenly said, do you want to, you know, go do that there? Uh, it's just something that's happened because we've put in, you know, some positive stuff around gender and, and, talked about it and oh, I was so happy on my way here um he came to the airport to see me off and um there's a little girl and she was running around and uh she's wearing like this bright pink dress and um I could almost see him looking at it like oh, I want that dress um <laughs> it was really like really super shiny um and uh he's like watching her for a while and then he said to me you know there are some things that um boys can do that girls can't do and I said to him oh really like what and he said, oh, well, like, sometimes boys can jump, but girls, like, can't jump. And I was like, well, I think you'll find that it's just that some people jump higher than others, and I don't think it matters if they're a girl or a boy. And he's like, mm, boys can definitely run faster. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't think so. Um, and we try not to be too, you know, like, we don't get too involved in those conversations because it's just going to switch him off. 
So, yep, talked about that a little bit. And then about five minutes later, we're still sitting there and he was like, I want to go play with that girl. And I was like, all right, well, I'll come over with you. So we went over and um, she was really very sweet and she was like saying hello. And he sort of said, I wanted to run with you. She said, yeah, okay. And I started running up and down and she kicked his ass. She like, she was like doing laps of him and he couldn't handle it. Like he just stopped (laughs) playing after a while and he was like, I don't like it. She's beating me. And I was like, trying not to rub it in, but inside I was like, fuck yeah, girl. I'm so glad you beat the shit out of my son because I don't want him to, you know, like he should be looking at people as individuals. He shouldn't be trying to, you know, those categories are just not important, but I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to, you know, obviously it's already infiltrating. He's already saying girls can, boys can't. So we do our work around that, but, um, but parents are such a, Sort of, yeah. I was about to say small, and that's totally wrong. But parents are not the whole picture. No, not at when all. When it comes to not at all, socialization. and once they start to get to school age, you know, they're looking to their peers. Their peers are people who tell the truth, as far as they're concerned. So, and again, that's why we have to be so careful walking this line with him about not, you know, not talking about it in terms of good and bad, and um, oh, don't say that girls are like this or boys are like that, you know, because as soon as I say that, he just won't say it in front of me, but yeah. he'll still think it and he'll still say it. But then you um, won't be able to have those conversations with exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's hard though, because when he says that, like I just remember the first time he came home and he was like, I don't like girls. And I was like, <laughs> okay, um, well, how do you feel about Valentine? Who's one of his cousins. He's like, oh, she's awesome. How do you feel about Isabel? Another one of his cousins. Yeah, she's great. How do you feel about Grammy? How do you feel about me? Yeah, you're all awesome. Do you know one thing we've all got in common? We're all girls. And he was like, he just sat there for a minute. He was like, it's just... Yeah, okay, I'm going to sit with this, I'm going to sit with this. All right, girls are fine. Yeah, they're fine. You know, like, so they start repeating these things before they even really understand what they're talking about, which is hard to combat. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that gender stuff starts really young. And it really just young. gets more and more exacerbated as you get older, I think. I'm hoping that around maybe, I don't know, 28 and a half, yep. it starts to peter out. Yeah. <laughs> and everything's just smooth sailing. Don't, don't ask me to comment from 34. <laughs> it's not really getting worse but I oh it's think... gonna get worse as soon as i start getting there when are you gonna have kids oh, which is already fuck. starting it's already oh, starting i've already so got people exhausting. going you should just do it and i'm like you know that i'm like single right and also i don't really want to and they're like no you should just do it I'm like, i get, I get like... so mad i have quite a few people in my life who are child free by choice and the amount of shit they have to put up with is just unconscionable like the idea that everyone feels like they can comment on like imagine if we just walked around to saying to men when are you going to get a vasectomy i really i've always thought you wouldn't be great at having kids so maybe you should have a vasectomy it's a great idea like stay the fuck out of my reproductive life it's got nothing to do with you and just this idea that people and i think men do get it too um but obviously when we get it a lot more but you know you reach that point especially if you you know partnered with someone and then people start pressuring you but it's like that thing of why, why do you care what I do? Why is it so important that you want me to do this thing? Like, why do you give a shit whether I choose to have kids or not? It's got nothing to do with you. I can't, I really can't get my head around why it's so important. Like, come join the majority. It's great over here. We all get no sleep and we've been terrorized by these little things. Oh, you'll love it. Or even better, come join the majority and then no one will hassle you about your life choices. Right? Like, I'm just hassling you so that you won't be hassled anymore. I'm trying to help you, man. (laughs) All I do for you, you never appreciate. All the hassling. Yeah, it's so true. All the hassle. (laughs) So true. Yeah. 
Yeah. Leafa, it has been so much fun talking oh to you. Oh my gosh, I think I've broken your record. <laughs> I've talked to you for so long. This is great. This is great. Um, I just want to end by telling you about this idea I've had. I'm floating oh, it with yeah. a few people, yep. see if we can make this happen. Good. Um, I want to do a comedy room. Yes. Where uh, we have um, gender equality in all the lineups. Yep. And it's going to be called Hashtag Not All Men. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Oh, it's like you dreamed of what would make me happiest and brought it to life. Oh, I will produce the shit out of that show for you, Caitlin. Oh my god, yes. This is going to happen. I will, I will do it. I would love to do Look, that. That is such if, a great idea. If we ever have the energy. <laughs> yeah. Well, one day you'll get out of bed and I'll get out of bed. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would love it. That would and these be are the projects I'm excited about doing now. I'm not going to be working one job full time too. So, you know, oh, watch out for that, people. That's now world. coming to a stage near you. <laughs> world, look out. So Leafa Singleton Norton is Thank about so to be much, freelancing your way. Thanks for joining me. It was so great. Thank you. Uh, that was so much fun. It really was. <laughs> fun chat and it's great for me to relive what a really fun weekend National Young Writers Festival was. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Um, you can, if you like what you hear, you can subscribe. We're on iTunes now. Finally figured out the iTunes thing. Yes. Um, so you can hit the subscribe button on iTunes uh, or you can just keep tuning in every two weeks. Um, we're going to have a new episode for you every two, two weeks. And, um, yeah, if you want to know more about Leifa Singleton Norton, she's on Twitter. She's at Leifa SN, L-E-F-A-S-N. Really like her tweets. Um, you can also find out more about her at her website, anewleaf.com.au. So that's A-N-E-W-L-E-A-F.com.au. Um, and you can also find about her partner, Tim Norton. That's their website that they have there together. And um, expressmedia.org.au to find out more about VoiceWorks Literary Magazine and lots of great opportunities for writers under 30. <gasps> okay, that's it. I'm done. Um, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at kplyley, K-P-L-Y-L-E-Y. And my website is caitlinplyley.com, but whatever, I'll put links in the thing or something. doesn't matter. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks. Bye.